So this week on our Facebook site, I posted about you know one or two Christmas records that I really like because we did the Christmas <laughs> episode uh, last week, and I hope everybody out there is, uh, has listened to the Christmas episode because uh, Christmas is coming. It's kind of, yeah. it's pretty pretty quick. So this weekend, I, I posted about uh, my favorite recording of Handel's Messiah, which comes from way back in 1980. It was like a wow. groundbreaking uh, period instruments performance, one of the first ones made, maybe the first one made, actually, by Christopher Hogwood and the Academy of Ancient Music and uh, soloists of the time. And they had changed the way um, the Messiah was performed. And we hear the way we hear it today really started from that recording. Hmm. You know, it, it just built from there. Because before that, I remember hearing recordings of like, people singing in operatic voices and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir with a thousand people singing the choruses and it was just trying to blow you away. But that's not, we now know that's not really appropriate for Baroque era music. So I listened to the, the recording this weekend. It was recently re-released um, and remastered in 2015. So people can pick that up if you want, or you can probably hear it on streaming too. And I was really amazed listening to it at how much it shaped my perception of that work, you know, because when I sort of listen to newer recordings of it, I'm sort of saying, oh, well, this is like this and then, you know, and I'm, but I'm comparing it to that or what I remembered right. about that work in my mind. So it's pretty interesting how like one recording or one performance of a work can kind of shape the way you hear it for the rest of your life, even though you hear different approaches of it. And it's a really old performance too. It's interesting to hear. It's a little mm. quicker than uh, what we hear today because they've kind of stretched it out again. But I still love it. It's still great. It just kind of really yeah. hits me in a good place, all those fantastic voices from the 80s. I'll have to get some Messiah going before uh, Christmas time. I haven't listened to it yet this year. So. Well, listen to that one. It's really okay. good. Christopher Hogwood, Academy of Ancient Music, 1980. I know that uh, Judith Nelson and Emma Kirkby are the uh, sopranos on it. Oh. oh, I can't remember who else. Carolyn Watkinson, I think, was the... Uh, She's the mezzo or the alto. And then there was, um, who was it? Paul Elliott, tenor. And oh, I got to look it up. I don't really remember. <laughs> it's a great performance and a really historically uh, um, important one. And I just love the performances on it a lot. I think it really captures a nice feeling. We'll put that down on your religious Christmas list for yeah. the last few weeks. We had a nice uh, reply from Robert Hicks on oh, Winter yeah. a While. How yeah. nice. He was... Uh, really enthusiastic about what we had to say about his recording. As, as we were about the recording itself. Yeah, so it's all, it's love all around. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't heard that yet, that's your one-stop Christmas music for this season, Winter Yeah, Wild, Robert, Robert Hicks, Hicks. Uh, yeah, Winter Wild. Yeah. Give that a listen, that's so, so good. Yeah. Go back, you've still got some time before Christmas. Check out our last episode, if you haven't heard it. That right. was episode 92, uh, You'll Be Merry. You know, I'm I'm old enough to have heard the Academy of Ancient Music under Christopher Hogwood perform <laughs> Messiah back in the late 80s. So they were still doing it, you know, in right. Boston Symphony Hall back in the day. They're, I think they're a British ensemble, but um, I guess they had an office in Boston or something because oh, okay. he was there quite often. I was working at NPR, one of the NPR stations in Boston at the time, and uh, we interviewed him. Really interesting. It was hmm. the whole. It was a really interesting time. All right. Well, I'm definitely going to check now. it out. Well, over there on that mic with your Messiah breakdown is yeah, Mike. That's me, Mike with the Messiah breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Russ over here on this mic, and you're listening to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And here we are tonight with episode 93. We've got just one more after this one before our special 
end of the year episode. Which we're apparently going to be recording on Christmas Day. Is that right? Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, whichever works better for you. Either one's fine. I'm, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and uh, we'll have that up probably Christmas Day or the day after with our best of 22 list. Yeah. 2022, that is. And, well, we've got a couple more weeks to cram in uh, some recordings that we like from this year. Well, j just one, really. But we'll still be doing recordings from this year, early next year, because yeah. you know, it's going to just take time for... We'll get through everything. Us to even accumulate some of the recordings from uh, next year. They don't come out right away. No. There'll be a little yeah. slowdown over the holidays. Not for us, though. Not for we, us. I've got no. plenty of stuff I want to put out there, including a lot of like uh, music by contemporary composers that I somehow didn't get to because we were doing all these themed episodes, right. which we've now suddenly gotten away from. But uh, I feel more free now. <laughs> you know, I just yeah. put on what I want to hear now instead of trying to make it fit in. And I kind of bypassed a few things that looked really interesting. And I guess we'll get to them in January. We'll see. Yeah. As always, we're going to have six interesting recordings here. Uh, I don't yeah. really have a theme this time except exciting and next week i have a theme but i won't tell you about it until uh, the end of the episode exciting is right yeah i remember those jazz records were exciting yeah, yeah. they're they all really good. good in their own yeah. way looking forward mm -hmm. to talking about them after the classical section which always comes first but if we've got any new listeners and you're wondering what are these guys talking about where is this music we well, can find links to all of it in the episode description there's spotify and apple music there and then at the top of the description there's a link to the full episode playlist that's all the music in one place on deezer that's our favorite cd quality streaming platform they also have podcasts you can listen to the podcast on deezer along with the music if you become a member there and if you don't see the full description or the list or the links aren't active on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow and all the links work from there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and take a moment, give us a ranking, click on the stars, write a short review. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, and then we can make our audience bigger. You can also follow us on Facebook, as Mike said, where he posted that uh, Messiah recommendation. Yeah, and where Russ po posts a ton of new jazz stuff. i got to start doing that. That's going to be my New Year's <laughs> resolution. I'm going to put like all the classical stuff on there, too, because I haven't yeah. been doing it much this year. Whenever I get something new that sounds really yeah. good, I put it up there because uh, I don't know when we may be able to talk about it in detail. So if you need something right. new to listen to almost every day, you can check the Facebook and you can also see our handsome faces there. Leave yeah. a message, post a comment. And otherwise, if you'd like to get in contact with us directly, any comments or questions, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we've got a few other podcasts we'd like to recommend to you. We've got Something Came From Baltimore by Tom Gowker. It's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast featuring interviews with lots of famous artists from around mm -hmm. the U.S. We've got Famous Interviews in Neon Jazz. This is by Joe Domino. It's got interviews with not only musicians, but artists and writers. And then we've got Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. It's by Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra, and they look at different versions of the same jazz standard every week. They play snippets from the different versions and discuss the history of the original and the different versions. So you'll find links for all of those podcasts at the end of the description if you need some more musical knowledge and interviews to get you through the week. And I'll put yeah. the trailers for them at the end of the show. 
So there's really no news otherwise uh, this week. I don't think so. No other uh, musical news, no deaths this week uh, that I know of. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah, it's all uh, World Cup over here, so that's <laughs> the only news there is. <laughs> anyway, everything else has just been kind of put into the background. But not music, though. We're still doing a lot of that. Anyway, so last week we did our Christmas episode, and this week, oddly enough, I've got a slightly removed uh, Christmas theme this week. None of the recordings I've chosen are Christmas albums, but they do kind of have something that kind of puts me in a Christmas mood or reminds me of mm. Christmas, let's just say, all right? So I'm kind of thinking of this as uh, Christmas on the periphery or my Christmas adjacent uh, choices. <laughs> So the fir the first so you can you can kind of count these as kind of like uh, if you if you don't like Christmas but you like uh, the sidelines the of aspect Christmas. of it only you, know, <laughs> you can think about th this anyway sidelines anyway the first recording we have here today in, in uh, classical music is called um, German Baroque Trumpet Concertos now what does that have to do with Christmas well I always associate brass with Christmas brass hmm. and vocals really. So um, there are no vocals on this album. It's just trumpet, and it's Baroque trumpet. It's not just ordinary trumpet. The yeah. trumpetist, or how do you say, the trumpeter? Trumpeter. Is Thomas Reiner, and uh, he's German, and uh, he's uh, accompanied here by Interpreti Veneziani, and that's on the Naxos label. Reiner, by the way, only plays instruments or trumpets made by the American manufacturer Schilke. Do you know them? Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty famous, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Except my one complaint on this recording, because it's got a couple premiere recordings, pieces right. that have been dug out of archives, never recorded before. And it does mention that he plays flugelhorn on one of the pieces. Oh, I but, got the, I know which one that is. I yeah. should, you could have asked. <laughs> no, no. But it, what I'm wondering is which specific trumpets he plays on the other pieces. And that's not included in the Naxos information. So. It's not. No, it's not even yeah. in the booklet. In fact, yeah. um, which is kind of odd. I wonder why they did that. Yeah, it know. just says trumpet. Yeah. yeah. It would have been nice to know. That's As a true. trumpet player, yeah. I was curious uh, to know. Uh, I, could, I could have written to them. I just yeah. didn't. <laughs> anyway. anyway, these are all um, unknown to me um, works. They're kind of um, not by terribly famous composers, except for three of them. But we'll start off with Gottfried Heinrich Stürzel, concerto in D major for trumpet and strings. Now, one thing to... Um, keep in mind about this album is that a lot of these works more than half probably are originally for oboe and this is one of them um this this first one so and it was transcribed for the trumpet here if you think about the sound of the oboe it's reedy it's kind of got a thin sound mm. and this trumpet that he plays it's a it's got this gigantic sound that just kind of takes up the whole sound space it's pretty amazing the the, the big sound that makes We'll get to that in a moment. Anyway, in this particular piece, there are a lot of Italian elements. That means like sprung rhythm, that kind of thing. Three movements, fast, slow, fast. That's a Vivaldi sort of in, invention. And oh, by the way, this work, the notes say, might be by Reinhard Kaiser because it's identical to a concerto in D major for flute by him. So people think it's by Stolzl, but uh, we're not really sure. Mm. Things just get lost in the mists of time. First movement, Allegro, the fast movement, the opening fast movement, has an operatic overture opening with some attractive echo effects. And there's lots of space in the room for the very small accompanimental forces to play. So this ensemble features uh, four violins, two violas, a cello, a double bass, and sometimes a harpsichord, but not in this piece. 
the trumpet sound, as I said, is huge. It's very bright and resonates through the large space. Um, he really does kind of drown out the other musicians. You, the reason why you have four violins, two violas, a cello is because you have to kind of go by, I forget what it is. If you want a violin sound to double in volume, you have to always sort of have a multiple of twos. So for example, like if you have two violins, you want it to be twice as loud, you need four violins. Hmm. And if you have four violins, you want it to be twice as loud, you need eight violins. It, it goes like that. And that's what they've done here, but they only have four violins. There's a lot of natural room reverb on this. And uh, Reiner's technique on this big instrument, or big sounding instrument is impressively virtuosic and quick. Uh, the tone sounds like that of an older um, Baroque era instrument. It doesn't have that bright kind of sound that you get from like jazz recordings. There's a little more of a sort of burnished sound to it. And it's got a lower tuning, I think, than A equals 440, which is the standard. Um, it sounds like they've sort of tuned down. Yeah, this piece is nice, satisfying full cadence. The middle slow movement, Andante, is a serious duet between the trumpet and two violins in unison. It's mysterious and weepy in tone, and the trumpet comes in with a distant, mournful sound. There's some interesting dissonant notes in the theme that are hit hard by the trumpet and really stand out. Short and satisfying. The Allegro, third movement, is Vivaldi-esque and cheerful. Uh, the trumpet really sounds like an unusual fit with this accompaniment as far as its big, splashy tone goes. It's not a laser-focused tone, like as I said. It's kind of wide. Um, the movement has a nice bounce to its rhythm, too. Okay, next we go to um, a piece by Johann M Michael Fasch. Concerto uh, 6 x Dies in E-flat major for trumpet, violin, and strings. Uh, this is the only surviving work by Johann Michael Strauss Fasch, who is the younger brother of Johann Friedrich Fasch. Why did their parents call them both <laughs> Johann? This was, this was really confusing to me. Hmm. I don't know. Um, but Johann Friedrich Fasch is well known for his, I guess, brass works. He did a lot of French horn um, works too. I've heard a few of those. Okay, first movement, Allegro. It has a pretty standard Vivaldian type opening. The trumpet comes in with the first solo line higher up in his register. The violin fits in well. And the violinist is uh, Giuliano Fontanella. He shows a uh, nice virtuosity. Uh, the trumpet is a total contrast to the violin. <laughs> um, I'm enjoying his phrasing though in this movement in fitting in with the violin. The Daggio is like a Baroque era stately dance. The trumpet comes in after the intro and repeats the melody. This movement is repetitive, but I was continually happy to hear the warmth of the trumpet's cadential material. Approached with a trill, and a really nice clean trill, I have to say. The third movement, Allegro, has a light, aggressive opening, like a rushing stream, kind of like when you hear those opening Vivaldi movements, -na 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 -na, you know, like a, sounds like a string, stream. Uh, trumpet comes in for the emphatic solo. Uh, the violin comes in at 40 seconds and shows Vivaldi and virtuosity. Uh, he plays rushing accompaniment with melodic peaks, peeking through the texture. Uh, the trumpet comes back and plays with the brightness of a herald call. I use this word herald a lot, you know, when you're kind of signaling to someone. Mm. Um, I get a lot of those sort of um, sounds or that image on this album. This is a pretty straightforward movement with no harmonic surprises, but pleasing all the same. Okay, track 7 to 10 is a work by someone you all know, uh, Georg Philippe Telemann. That is, if you listen to Baroque music, he's one of the giants. Concerto in C minor. <laughs> TWV 51 colon lowercase c 1. Telemann wrote hundreds of thousands of works. He wrote thousands <laughs> of works. And uh, the way they're cataloged is really 
I guess it's it's it makes it easy for scholars, but it's really complicated <laughs> because there are just so many works, and they use all these there are capital C's and lowercase C's to distinguish between certain elements of what kind of a piece this is, and it's anyway. I'll give you the number just so you can figure it out if you want to search it for it on the internet or something. This one's originally an oboe concerto, and the four movement structure, slow, fast, slow, fast, shows the structure of Arcangelo Corelli's Italian church sonatas. So that was another form that was current at the time. The first movement, grave, is tragic, agitated, and pulsing string arrangement, uh, which disrupt the noble lines of the solo instrument. We hear a rather quiet but anxious-sounding harpsichord at the beginning. The tutti explode in with the trumpet and play the agitated theme. And I feel like the terrace dynamics in this could have a little more contrast between them in this movement. Okay, in Baroque music, we don't get crescendos and decrescendos. We get terraced dynamics. And what that means is it's loud, it's soft. It doesn't go from soft to loud. It just sudden, suddenly changes. And we do hear a contrast here, but usually they're a little more dramatic. Here they're kind of subtle. The repeated phrases are only at a slightly lower volume. And so it's like an echo effect, but it's kind of a loud echo, I guess. Uh, nevertheless, the movement comes across as ominous. Second movement, Allegro, um, is, has a teasing question and answer type of line, winding lines in the trumpet. The question and answer comes from the two-note phrases ping-ponged back and forth between trumpet and ensemble. Third movement, slow, andante, interrupts the previous movement with a melancholy feeling. Again, repeated phrases between the ensemble and trumpet, after which they meld together for the cadences. And the fourth movement, vivace, a lively movement with heralding, again, herald, trumpet playing in the slower middle section. The next piece is also by Telemann, concerto in D major, TWV 51, colon, capital D, 8. And this one is the one that's transcribed for a flugelhorn in E flat major. So we're hearing this in E flat major, I think, right? Is it good? Yeah, okay. Mm. Or maybe he's playing in D major, I don't know. It's played in uh, E flat here, yeah. In E flat, right. Yeah. Okay, so this is this piece is it's um, played transcribed for flugelhorn. The original um, solo instrument was corno da caccia, which is a hunting horn. I guess a different instrument completely, but uh, still trumpet-like. I guess the allegro movement, first movement, it has a uh, motoric um, tone repetitions. I like the flugelhorn's entrance entrance in this. It's pretty subtle, uh, keeping to the level of the ensemble. Um, the flugelhorn produces a few echo effects and generally has a highly virtuosic line to play. The middle section, led by the flugelhorn, features smoother lines, but rather repeated notes, rapid repeated notes, sorry, quickly return. The second movement, Largo, is elegiac in tone. There's a stately movement to the rhythm that the flugelhorn mournfully plays over. There's an open cadence at the end, and that leads to the third movement, Allegro. Minuet style with elaborate Baroque ornamentation, played at moderate speed. The trumpet's theme, despite it being sort of a minuet, does have a concluding movement feel to it. There's some really impressive quick virtuosic runs on the flugelhorn in this movement, uh, considering it sounds like a heavy, cumbersome instrument to play. It's got a big sound. Tracks 14 to 16, uh, Franz Reinhardt is the composer. Sonata con tromba in C major. This uh, starts presto, it has a bubbly opening with the trumpet coming in with the answering line sounding very loud and reverberant in the space. There's some impressive thrills from this big sounding instrument. 
it seems to me like when we're hearing these the strings and they're playing and it sounds like a typical baroque work but every time the trumpet comes in the entire musical profile of the work completely changes it just sounds like a different kind of work all of a sudden i think i I keep expecting to hear another violin playing solo or something and then you hear that one very different tone come in and the work has a completely different quality to my ears anyway Second movement, Adagio has slow, long lines in the accompaniment, and the trumpet plays the occasional quarter note. Uh, He gets a bit more of a melody by the 45-second mark. And then the third movement is a repeat of the first movement. It's it's taken Mm -hmm. much the same way, too. It's like a sandwich, with the first and third movement being the slices of bread. Tracks 17 to 20. Handel. Everybody knows him from Messiah. We were just talking about him. Uh, Concerto in B-flat major, HWV 301. This one's also originally for oboe. First movement, and this is written in the um, the Corellian style of slow, fast, slow, fast. There's a slow walking bass line with wavering string lines like they're in a gentle breeze. And the trumpet plays a rather pretty legato melody with a gentler attack than we've been hearing. I'm always impressed by Reiner's neat trills at the approach to cadences as in this piece or in this movement. The second movement, Allegro, is a typical Handel rhythm, played with substantial vigor to put its rhythmic drive across. It's not very fleet, though, which is just as well because the trumpet needs to maneuver over it, which Reiner does well. But one can tell that this piece is originally for a lighter, more agile instrument. That's still, Reiner is impressive in his ability to get around at this tempo. Uh, The third movement, Siciliano, has a 3-4 rhythm of the Siciliano. It's a lilting movement. The strings play the theme first. Then the trumpet comes in to play it in its unique tone. And the fourth movement, Vivace, is big and bold. The trumpet comes out in full voice for the opening. Then we get a repeat at a softer volume. This brief movement goes on to a vigorous conclusion. I should also mention these movements are very short. Mm. They're often about two or three minutes long. Some of them are less than two minutes. A composer we really like, Heinrich Ignaz Franz Biba. Sonata Tam Adis Quam Aulis Servientes, number four, in C major. These works are made for um, either the concert hall or the uh, church they're labeled as. And this does sound rather churchy in the accompaniment, like a movement from a Bach chorale. The trumpet here is in full voice and is back in its uh, herald mode. The allegro starts at around 1 minute 35 seconds, and we hear the strings lighten up and play a quicker melody. The trumpet comes in and plays something slightly slower and melodic. It gets a rather modest line here. And the second movement moves um, presto, adagio, presto, so fast, slow, fast, all in one movement. It starts out with few little voices entering in the tutti with the trumpet functioning as one of them. Um, So you can pick that line out pretty easily, as you can imagine. Just before the one minute mark, the adagio comes in, played only by strings. It's a layered sound. And a presto starts at around a minute and 30 seconds, led by the ensemble. The trumpet coming in for this triumphant ending section after the theme is stated. A nice high note at the end. The final work on this album is track 23, Johann Christian Schickhardt, piece for trumpet solo, opus 17, number 12. And we only get one movement of this, the Alemanda movement, which is the second movement. For trumpet solo, I'm kind of wondering why he didn't just play the whole thing, because there's loads of room on the CD. It's about an hour long, this um, album. But perhaps Reiner just thought it was a fitting encore ending to the album. Or maybe um, the rest of the uh, movements weren't... Um, suitable for a trumpet transcription, which I think this is. I mean, it's called Peace for Trumpet Solo, but I'm not entirely sure that's the uh, original name. 
It works as an encore, as I said. There's a longish pause on the album between this track and the previous one, I guess, to isolate it. The trumpet plays it solo. There's no accompaniment. And he shows some oppressive agility in its, his quick lines. Reiner gets really high up in his range for some of the notes in this piece. There are more variations of attack in this solo work than we've heard in the rest of the album, um, particularly towards the end where the brightness of the tone briefly changes. It's very impressive playing, and it's impressive music as well. It's a rather inconclusive ending for the album, though. The, the cadence is pretty short at the end. It really doesn't... You don't get the sense that the entire album is being resolved at that point. I would have liked a longer cadence to let me know that it's all over, because it just kind of ended, and then that was it. The, uh, the music shut off. So anyway, this album was all good. The trumpet's tone and virtuosity were the main focus of the performances, and uh, Reiner comes across well in all of these works. I liked his wide, very present tone. His presence and highly contrasted timbre make him the center of attention when he's playing, also because all the other instruments are basically string instruments, except for the odd harpsichord uh, continuo. The transcriptions all work well enough, but the trumpet sounds really big when it comes in, providing a contrast the original oboe in many of these works couldn't possibly match. So there's not much subtlety in the contrast between trumpet and ensemble. Um, but don't let that keep you away. The recorded balance is a little odd with the ensemble up close so it can be heard along with the trumpet, <laughs> who sounds further away, but is still very loud. Overall, the recorded sound is heavier than we generally get from Baroque recordings these days. And I generally prefer my Baroque music to be lighter and fleeter than we hear on this album. But Reiner's huge tone prevents that from being a possibility. And this album makes for something different in Baroque music. These works would have been heard in many different ways in their era, and probably not at the speeds we hear them at today. This is a rather different approach. The unique tone Reiner gets makes this an interesting listen all the way through, and that's really what carried me through. I really enjoyed listening to him. Well, hats off to Naxos for, again, taking a chance recording music that hasn't been recorded before, uh, like they've done with the Ranitsky recordings we've been uh, right. featuring. And so that's quite interesting to me as a trumpet player. You know, I would have never had a chance to hear something like this back when I was studying trumpet in high school and university. You know, you wouldn't find a recording like this around, um, even if it was made probably. But now with streaming, you can um, you know, get something like this right away. It makes me wonder what else is still in manuscript forms in libraries uh, from all sure you know, there's a lot of other eras like that. There's a lot of work for music researchers if you want it, because yeah. uh, there's a lot of unknown music there, and it's all coming out now, which is great. So it was interesting to hear these Fash, and uh, which was the other one that was a premiere recording here, also the Reinhardt, uh, that no one's ever recorded before. Uh, however, I had a very different impression of the tone uh, than you did on the first piece, Again, this is why I really wanted to know which trumpets he was using, if he's a C or D. Is he yeah. got a piccolo trumpet on one of the pieces? Because uh, I thought the tone was rather too compact on the first piece. Really I wasn't going to like it. Not talking about volume, just the nature yeah. of the tone from my conception of various trumpets. But that changed in the fash, and I, I enjoyed the kind of more open tone on that piece too. That's why I was curious about uh, the instruments that he was using. I know he has a good tone in general, but what I found his real strength to be is his upper register. Uh, mm. Playing is really, really good. And his technique in general, but especially his technique in the upper register. The trills on the recording yeah. are really well done, and some of the fast passages are really dazzling. 
Uh, so it's some fine trumpet playing on there. Interesting pieces. Some of them are more interesting than others. Uh, some of them have better movements than the other ones. But the Reinhardt first movement, the presto, I just yeah. love those like bursting trill lines. And uh, right. he had really great technique there. And I was like, why hasn't anyone recorded this before? Yeah. You know, it's a really kind of uh, inspiring Baroque trumpet theme there. But uh, yeah, I'm glad we have it. His trills really did jump out at me. It's just how yeah. clean they are. You know, it's, um, it, made a, it made an impression. Yeah. See, when I heard this um, album, I was just under the impression that he was just using a different technique with the same trumpet. But no, huh? Yeah, they have. To I don't know. Instruments. You know, yeah. usually in classical music, you've got a you know a, a variety of different uh, keyed instruments you can use because right. brass instruments, you know, they don't have the same kind of tuning and harmonics in the different keys. So yeah. Okay. Well, maybe he'll. Uh, maybe we'll hear from him and yeah. Anyway, let us know. I'm glad he, uh, you know, did this. Got some music that's never been recorded out there. That's great. All right. From that to um, this next work, this next album, Reinhold Glier and Alexander Mosolov Harp Concertos. And this is by harp superstar, classical superstar, Xavier de Maistre, accompanied by the WDR Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Natalie Stutzmann, who uh, started life as a... Uh, as a vocalist, she was—I think she was a low voice, either an alto or a mezzo—and she's made the transition to conducting now. So she's a very busy woman. And this is the uh, on the Sony classical label. Now we last heard Xavier de Maestro last Christmas because he made the Christmas harp album. That was him. Oh. And uh, one of the works he um, recorded on that album was his transcription of um, the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from uh, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. And we hear that. Again, on this album, and yeah. I'm wondering if it's the same recording or if it's just been lifted from that and put on this so that we'll have it you know, all year long rather than if we happen to have bought the uh, Christmas harp album. <laughs> but uh, so we do have a little Christmas theme here too, okay? And uh, the harp is also an instrument that I sort of associate with Christmas just because it's so chimey and bells. Mm. Bells remind me of Christmas too. Right. So, you know, any kind of bell sounds. The, Sh the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy was originally w written for the Celesta. There it is. Okay. Right. That that sounds kind of bell-like and Christmassy to me. So we have here two concertos by, um, how, how can I say? They're not Russian. Well, Glier, Reinhold Glier was born in Kiev, which was in the, which is in Ukraine today. But it was Tsarist Russia at the time when he was um, born. And then it became the Soviet Union during his lifetime. And he was a professional composer. When he was a professional composer, a Stalin was the Soviet Union's ruler. But uh, and we all know the stories of Stalin's um, sort of um, list of um, unwelcome composers. Let's say like <laughs> Shostakovich suffered a lot from him. Claire didn't have any trouble with him though, because uh, he was a traditionalist with no need to fear suppression or persecution, as you will hear in this work. It's pretty straightforward. He was a romantic in an avant-garde age, and he was certainly born in the right place for that because. <laughs> If if you were romantic, even Rachmaninoff was a romantic, and he became popular, but he was he was considered to be out of step at the time. But his, he was just so great with melodies, and people mm -hmm. loved his music so much that he got a pass, I guess. Not from the avant-gardists, but from just the orchestras and pianists loved to play his music too. Okay, so he wrote his harp concerto, the one we hear here, with advice from the Russian harp virtuosa. I like that, virtuoso. A woman <laughs> would be virtuosa. Zenia Erdely. He actually offered to name her the co-composer of the work. Wow! But she, yeah, but she declined, 
and wound up with an editing credit. Hmm. Anyway, people were more modest in those days, I guess. <laughs> anyway, the uh, first movement is Allegro Moderato. This is a three-movement work, you know, generally um, standard concerto form. The grand opening and highly romantic opening for the harp is gentle and touching. And De Maestra, as I mentioned, he's a superstar. He's one of the best harpists alive today. And uh, he wrings every drop of romanticism out of this phrase with his sensitive playing. But not to the point of making it syrupy or anything negative. It's really perfectly judged if you want to hear what a proper romantic uh, line should sound like. Just listen to the opening here you know, without it going over the edge. The orchestra repeats the romantic theme, which is rather gushing in its uh, orchestral form. <laughs> That's the romantic era that Galliere was influenced by coming out in this work. Uh, the movement proceeds like a sonata form. We're hearing the fragmented material of the development by the fourth minute. There's a cadenza in the sixth to seventh minute, which is very gentle, with block chords providing the bulk of the material. It plays exactly what you'd hear from a romantic harp work. There are lots of heavenly arpeggios. You can hear one of those at uh, 7 minutes and 35 seconds. The cadenza lasts until around 8 minutes and 50 seconds, so it's pretty long. It's ended by the entry of an oboe, I think. It's a reed instrument playing the main theme. There's a brief coda at the end that leads us to the final cadence. The second movement is titled Tema con Variazioni, which is theme and variations. Um, the theme is started on a cello, and then the harp takes it up. The theme starts with slowly arpeggiated chords, out of which grows more flowing material. The variations start at a minute and 20 seconds. At two minutes and 30 seconds, the orchestra gets its own variation without the appearance of the harp. The harp re-enters for the next variation at around three minutes and 20 seconds. And then at five minutes and 58 seconds, timpani enter the picture briefly for an emphatic ending. At the beginning of the seventh minute, we get some poignant phrasing on the theme from the harp, which is a particular standout moment. Uh, seventh minute, that is, if you want to sample that. The theme is softly played in cellos and muted trumpet at eight minutes. And then gentle harp figuration patters down the range of the instrument at nine minutes. Third movement, Allegro Giocoso. This is a brief movement at five minutes and one seconds, much briefer than the previous two. The orchestra provides a red carpet on which the harp can introduce its light, Russian-sounding, or really East European-sounding, folk dance theme. At the 52nd mark, the harp gets an arpeggiated second theme accompanied by flute. This work really goes as expected. The folk theme is active and easy to identify when it comes back. There are other folk themes in the movement, such as the one heard at three minutes. By three minutes and 22 seconds, we're back to the opening theme, uh, which the harp plays all the way through. The music, already lively, livens up a bit more in the approach to the final cadence, telegraphed as early as the beginning of the fourth minute. It's a pleasing work with nothing unexpected. Great performance, as expected, though. To be honest, it's a little the, the work itself is a little too syrupy for my taste. I, I like syrup on pancakes only, <laughs> not in music. No, I thought it was rather kind of cinematic in yeah, I the guess orchestration. You, that. you get yeah. like both in the first movement and then in the third movement, you can sort of envision this kind of romp through the forest or something, you know, like in a, a Star mm -hmm. Wars scene of the Ewoks or something like that. It's kind of a uh, very Yeah, something big, yeah. John Williams-like, maybe. Yeah. Okay, maybe, yeah. It, it does have that kind of, that big quality. And cinema was a uh, form at the time. Mm -hmm. They were, um, movies were being made with those big scores, even though they weren't very well recorded back in the day. 
It is a beautiful work, uh, perfectly played by De Maestra, and it's a textbook example of classical era musical form. That would be uh, Mozart and Haydn, the classical era of their their form, except with a big modern orchestra. I think, yeah, there was there were no surprises in this. It was just hmm. really pretty, and I think I want the I was missing the intellectual element, I guess. But anyway, a, a really beautiful work and uh, one that's not too hard on the brain, so you can enjoy this like you know right away anyway the fourth um track is by uh alexander glazunov it's called um, prelude et la romanesca which is from his opera raymonda okay now this is worth hearing because glazunov was a great orchestrator as were many russian composers of the era think of rimsky korsakov all the way down to stravinsky he was also very much a traditionalist keeping to well-worn formal structures although that with his when it comes to his music that doesn't bother me because he's just so skilled as a composer and orchestrator that i really like hearing his music now one of the reasons he's not very famous is because of that he was um he wasn't really a modernist he was more of a romantic in an, in a modernist era so his music kind of got a bit left behind but it is well worth hearing i think his music is inventive despite him being a traditionalist uh, within the structures that it's written in and the music here that we hear is from act one of i'm sorry i said opera it's from a ballet which is about raymonda a countess in hungary at the time of the crusades oh. <laughs> <laughs> i can just imagine the decor right away in this in this ballet she's torn between two men aren't they all the crusader jean de brienne to whom she's engaged and the saracen caliph of cordoba Abdurrahman, who tries to abduct her, as as they always do in these in, in um, works from this era. Um, this happens in uh, Mozart's uh, abduction from the Seraglio opera too. Uh, Jean, I guess his name is Jean de Brienne. Jean stops this and kills him, mm. and he marries Raimonda. But Raimonda is conflicted because she cannot forget her erotic adventure with Abdurrahman. That's the story. This particular little uh, snippet starts with an exotic set of arpeggios with a flourish of an arpeggiated figure. It's rather fairy tale like and this is a quality of Glazunov's music that I really enjoy. He evokes this fairy tale quality exceptionally well. Introduces a magical world. The catchy theme is first heard at a minute in, about at the minute mark. I notice the orchestra is more lightly scored, and this is to my ear more enjoyable than the Galier Concerto. But again, that's a personal opinion. It's not any better or better played or anything. It's the, you know still about the same sort of quality, which is very high. At the 2 minute and 25 second mark or so, we get the arpeggiated intro to the Romanesca. The theme is played in block chords and continued with filigree arpeggios from the harp. I, I should mention here, by the way, when you hear the word arpeggio, it means a, a broken up or rolled chord, right? Instead hmm. of like hearing the C, E, and G in a C major chord played together, you'd hear the C first, then the E, then the G. But the word arpeggio is the Italian word for like a harp. Arpa is the instrument, so arpeggio means like a harp um, sound. Hmm. So it's so huh. the, the word comes from the, the yeah. uh, technique on the harp. So there you go. Whenever I say that, you might want to think about that on this particular album. The entire intro is played by the harp alone, with only subtle accompaniment from the orchestra. And of course, De Maestre knows exactly how to shape these phrases to give maximum effect. His arpeggios have the heavenly nature we associate with the harp, and the piece ends rather suddenly on a tonic, 
but tension is not fully resolved, probably because there's more of the ballet to come that we're not hearing here. Tracks five through eight is Alexander Moslov, a composer that I'm sort of interested in. Mm. This is his harp concerto. He's got an interesting story. He was Glier's pupil, and Moslov was uh, continually, unlike Glier, coming into conflict with Soviet authorities, and like Shostakovich, <laughs> right? Because he was an exponent of musical modernism. In 1936, he was thrown out of the Union of Soviet Composers, and in 1937, sentenced to eight years hard labor for his alleged counter-revolutionary activities. In other words, they didn't like his music. <laughs> Go work. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. It's terrible. His teachers, Glier and Mieskowski, another composer who I really like, by the way, Mieskowski, look, look for him, were able to obtain a pardon for him. From then on, Mosolov wrote less radical music, and this newer style is what we hear in his harp concerto. Um, so it's it's a more modest piece. This is the first piece he wrote on his release from prison. Its melodies are simple and folk-like, and the work is more like a large-scale suite than a typical concerto. Except for the first movement, the other three movements are described as dances or character pieces. The first movement is marked sostenuto. And yes, we hear a rather typical Russian theme at the beginning in the orchestra with a heavy trudging rhythm. A bassoon takes over and plays a melody afterwards. The harp makes its entry at the 45 second mark, playing the theme with arpeggiated chords. I think the theme at a minute and 32 seconds is very pretty and more memorable than anything in the Glier. In the theme in the second and third minutes, there's a shimmer in the harp playing and orchestral accompaniment. It's quiet and mysterious. This mood goes on in multiple themes with the harp providing a lot of virtuosic accompaniment as the orchestra plays the themes. This is a rather unusual um, quality of this uh, movement. The mm -hmm. harp is doing a lot of figuration. He's the solo instrument, and yet the, uh, the orchestra is getting all the musical material. That's, I found that really odd and interesting too. Mm. In the eighth minute, all of this dissolves into a cadenza, which has some gorgeous figuration in it, especially in its arpeggiated self-accompaniment. It's a pretty long cadenza going on until the 12-minute mark, which is only two minutes before the end of the movement. There's an aggressive glissando ending the cadenza and a lovely French horn call in the orchestral material leading to the end. The harp comes back at 12 minutes and 45 seconds with arpeggiated chords and as the winds play the theme. And the harp basically accompanies to the final cadence. The second movement is a nocturne, so night music. It starts with a quiet pizzicato in the cellos, followed by a two-chord theme. The rhythm has a quarter note ticking quality to it, and all is quiet as the harp starts playing thematic material by a minute and 25 seconds. At 2 minutes and 11 seconds, the material changes to something more questioning and hesitant, then moves on to fuller orchestration. There are some lovely descending lines from the harp in the third minute. A big crescendo leaves us at a crisis point at 4 minutes and 40 seconds when the music breaks up and peters out. At 4 minutes and 45 seconds, it starts a ticking harmony in a darker mode, the orchestra that is. Uh, we're still in that dark mode in the sixth minute when we start hearing familiar material from the opening. Some pretty orchestration with metal percussion and what might be a celesta in the seventh minute is heard. And the high winds play the theme with flute adding arpeggiated figuration. You're going to hear a lot of arpeggios in a harp concerto. The third movement is a gavotte, which is a Baroque era dance. And this particular movement is neoclassical in style. So neoclassical was um, 
a movement when um, composers from the beginning of the 20th century, so modernists, were looking back to the classical era, and, and they were using those forms but had their own sort of spiced-up chords that they would put in there. So it's like Mozart style, but they didn't use his chords. They used their own sort of more modern chords, and those are some fantastic works. A good example would be um, Prokofiev's Symphony Number no. 1, which is a really immediately appealing work. Anyway, this third movement is neoclassical in style, and it's a complete character change from what we've heard before. This actually sounds happy-go-lucky in its rhythm and theme, which has a walking outdoors on a sunny day quality to it. It's very pretty and immediately appealing. There's a little more urgency in the opening theme in the first minute with its warning muted trumpet theme. The happy opening comes back afterwards, a little more restrained this time, and reaches its end. The fourth movement is a toccata, which is going to demonstrate your touch or your touch technique. It has a big, bold intro that resolves to a quick, rhythmically driven string theme. There's something anxious and urgent about it. The harp comes in and plays a version of it in arpeggiated fashion, rather filling its hesitations in. Um, appealing figuration comes in from the harp with the rhythm and high relief throughout. It sounds like there's a xylophone taking over the theme at the two-minute mark. Is that, you think, that's a xylophone? It's kind of bony sounding to me. Yeah, or was it a glockenspiel? See, I don't really know what a, the difference between a xylophone and a glockenspiel. Uh, at least not on a recording, I, I can't really tell. Anyway, the rippling harp figuration at 2 minutes and 20 seconds is highly appealing, so keeping your out for that. There's some glittering orchestration throughout the third minute accompanying the harp. The harp takes over the main material by itself in the fourth minute, building to a cadence that it doesn't reach. Rather, the bassoon takes over the theme, and gradually the tempo speeds up as the baton is passed to the strings, then winds and harp. We hear the opening theme again at 5 minutes and 23 seconds. The maestro is right on top of the rhythm, as is the orchestra, making sure we get a taut reading. This is an excellent interpretation of this movement and this work. You probably will never hear it better performed. And the album ends with Tchaikovsky's Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from the Nutcracker Ballet. This is arranged by uh, Xavier de Maestre himself. And as I said earlier, I'm pretty sure this figured on de Maestre's Christmas Harp album from last year. So there you go. There's your Christmas theme from this album, Christmas Adjacent. This um, goes as you would expect. There's orchestral accompaniment as the harp plays the famous melody in its high end. Not sounding too far from the sound of the celesta, to be honest. The melody suits the harp well, and we still get that sense of enchantment from the theme and its timbre. It's a pretty arrangement and ends the program rather subtly. Well, I have no complaints at all about Xavier de Maestro's playing. He brings these beautifully rendered but musically straightforward works alive or at least in the, in the, the Galliere anyway, is very straightforward, with his virtuosity and sensitivity and makes the best possible case for them. And virtuosity is required in both of these concertos. I thought the Masolov was fairly engaging. The, the Galliere, despite being too sweet for my ears, was highly virtuosic and required some serious technique to play. If you enjoy excellent harp playing and don't want a big listening challenge, um, this is instantly likable and well-recorded, too. The harp especially comes out sounding present and clear. It really is De Maestro's show, and he obviously loves the works. Yeah, I had a lot of fun listening to this one, too. There was, uh, as you say, a bit sweet, but it's really well done, and I liked all the orchestral parts as well. 
But the Mazalov is the real interesting centerpiece here. It's interesting that the first movement is so long <laughs> and has most yeah. of the interesting things in it. It's what, like 13 minutes and the other movements are kind right. of short. But there's so many transformations within that first movement. You get all these kind of uh, different themes and instrumentations. It's constantly changing. I, I found it fascinating, that work. And then finally in the third movement, you hear a major key, which is a, yeah. kind of a big change so far because it's all been, you know, this real kind of minor kind of Russian themed things. But all the way through uh, until the end, constant transformations. I found it really creative and uh, really fun to listen to. So the Sugar Plum Fairy is just a kind of nice thing to have on the end. And uh, of course, it wouldn't yeah. be the same without the bass clarinet in there. So. Always look forward to hearing that pop. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really <laughs> That's a great uh, sound. Yeah, enjoyable uh, recording. Yeah, no, I, the, the uh, Glazunov and the Mosolov works were really kind of compelling to me. Yeah. Uh, maybe when I well listen to all of it, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be so negative about the Galier. It's just, it's good. It's really good. It's just kind of not as unusual, really, as the others. Hmm. Okay, speaking of unusual. Oh, geez. We have a, <laughs> that's that's what you should say. Okay, the next and last classical album is um, a piano work by Messiaen, Olivier Messiaen, 20th century composer. Va regarde sur l'enfant Jésus. Now, and it's performed here by Bertrand Chamayou on the piano on the Erato label. Okay. Oh, I this album came out in June, so this is a very late sort of. Um, I left this to a late date, and because I was trying to figure out where could I put this in, maybe with a piano program. But really, what was going on with me is I was kind of intimidated about talking about this work. I really needed to. I knew I was going to take. It was going to take time to hear the whole thing. It's very long and it's very challenging work. So I finally figured, well, it's Christmas time, and the theme is the infant Jesus. Uh, Messian's, a lot of Messian's works have to do with, um, not only Christianity, but Catholic dogma. <laughs> he's, he's basically <laughs> writing Catholic dogma into a musical form, which is a really compelling thing, especially if you happen to be a Catholic or a Christian of any kind, but you don't need to be to, um, enjoy these works because they work on a lot of different levels. So the theme is the infant Jesus. It's Christmas. It, I figured, okay, let's do this now before I miss it because I thought this was a pretty uh, amazing performance of this very difficult work. The title is kind of hard to um, translate. It's um, 20 and the word regard, which means, um, it really means like a soft look or a gaze. You're just regarding something. You gaze, okay? In English, it often gets translated as contemplations because of the nature of the... Um, movement titles, but that's not really right. The idea to me, the image I get is that we have these, all the um, movement titles are called um, like the gaze of the father, the gaze of the star, the gaze of the uh, virgin, uh, you know, all these things. So you kind of have the idea that the baby Jesus is lying in his manger and all these sort of, um, I guess, eternal spiritual elements are looking down on him. And he's sort of interpreting, I think of it as like the uh, the mind of these things or the perspective that these things have on the baby Jesus and what he's going to do when he grows up. I find the work to be, it's very challenging, but I think it's very rewarding. And I'm going to try to walk you through it a little bit as 
much as I understand it, because there's still a lot of this that I don't really get. <laughs> I'd love to read a book on it, but I haven't really found one. The work is cast in the immeasurable richness of Messiaen's musical language with its sacred roots, the influence of Gregorian chant, the acoustic cosmos of the organ and its stops. Numerous chimes ring out here and there. Chord leitmotifs pervade the whole. There's the theme of God, there's the theme of the star, theme of the cross, and the theme of mystical love. All around these solid foundations, the myriad inspirations that form the essence, the singularity of Messian's style, bird songs, exotic melodies, his trademark ancient Greek and Hindu rhythms, shimmering harmonies in synesthetic chemistry with equally shimmering colors. One thing one we need to keep in mind when we listen to this or any Messian work is that he uh, had uh, synesthesia, which means that he saw sounds as colors. And he would compose according to the colors he saw, like he wanted this color, and he would um, work out the harmony so that he had that color. So he wound up with these really odd scales and chords a lot of times. So they're going to sound a little odd to your ear. They don't really make any sense in the sense of the tradition, but they do sound uh, specifically like Messiaen. The overarching momentum remains the realm of the divine. And uh, the pianist Bertrand Chamayou writes a really beautiful um, booklet note in this. He writes, as with a living organism, everything here is highly elaborate. Every chord, every rhythm, the heaving flow of the composition, the continuous gushing abundance, all products of a complex, ostensibly sophisticated mind. But what really shines through is the triumph of evidence a sense of beholding a certain truth. Okay, this is a quality that a lot of people hear in Messian's music, that you hear it and you're beholding a, a truth that you can't really communicate to other people or in any other way. My whole interest in Messian's music started when I was in college because I would always head over. I was studying you know, communications, but I would head over to the music school to practice the piano and I had a lot of music major friends. At the time, this was the 1980s, they would carry around like messian scores like they were like holy writ you know like there was like some kind of eternal truth in these scores they would really kind of you kind of got this impression that they kind of were treating it like it was like a sacred book or something like that and that really fascinated me so i was always sort of looking for mm. these qualities in his music and that was just the beginning of a lifetime of trying to figure out this complicated music i'll get to him and to the messian a little bit in a little bit more pretty soon but this um, album, it's a two CD set, and the uh, Vent Regard work is uh, 20 movements, and it's two hours long. <laughs> it's really challenging all the way through. It's really hard to go through the whole thing at once. I, I remember listening to this once with a um, an old uh, Japanese girlfriend of mine, and she very politely sat through the whole thing. And then when it was over, she turned to me and in this, this really gentle style without any kind of criticism or anything said, can we listen to some normal music now? <laughs> <laughs> so it'll probably hit you that way too. But please stick with it. I think this is really rewarding. Messiaen was one of the giants of um, musical modernism or, you know, post-war music. And he inspired a lot of composers that came after him. He's also rather unique in that he was a teacher and the composers he taught don't sound anything like, like him or like each other. So he's, <laughs> he, that's the ideal teacher to me. He died in 1992, and another um, exciting um, experience I had was I got to hear the premiere of his very last orchestral work called um, Eclair sur la, la, de la 
was his last orchestral work, and it was premiered at um, what was then Avery Fisher Hall in um, by the New York Philharmonic in New York at Zubin Mehta conducting, and I was there, and so was uh, Yvonne Loriot, his um, his wife. <laughs> he he had just died, so I was there for his the premiere of his last oh. work. Yeah, which is rarely recorded. I do have a recording of it, but it's very old. It's the one by Myungwon Chun, if anyone wants to check that out. Okay, anyway, this particular album, usually when this work is recorded, it's only the Vant Regard um, piano work, but uh, this album adds some other works. The first three works are all um, works by other composers mourning the death of uh, Olivia Messiaen in 1992. The first work is by Anthony Chung, who is an American composer, C-H-E-U-N-G, by the way, born in San Francisco in 1982. His work is called, uh, it's a solo piano work, Live Ear Emission, exclamation point, homage to Olivia Messiaen. It was written in 2001, so nine years after Messiaen's death. This work is full of freshness and vitality. It's got a crystal clear piano sound, very bright sounding, and the bass resonates beautifully. This piece rather reminds me of Messiaen's more ecstatic dancey rhythms, like in the uh, Vant Regard's uh, 10th movement, Regard de l'Esprit de Joie, and in the, if you know the Tarangalila Symphony, the uh, Sang des Etoiles movement, Joie de Sang des Etoiles. So this is uh, Messiaen's whole idea of joy in music. It's sort of ecstatic joy, you know, beholding a vision of God or something like that. Uh, about a minute in, it quiets down. We hear a lot of harsh chords that can't really be called dissonant because they aren't functional harmony. So they're just kind of like odd <laughs> harmonies. And they're not headed anywhere. As in jazz, the extra notes are there for color and expression. They're not there for like to lead you know the chords to a certain resolution. I'm already anticipating the Messiaen because Chamayou's playing here is lively and colorful. The second, uh, mo the second track is uh, by uh, a Japanese composer, Toru Takamitsu, probably Jap Japan's um, um, number one composer, the most mm. well-known from this country. Uh, Rain Tree Sketch 2, In Memoriam Olivier Messiaen, which he wrote in 1992, really probably just after Messiaen's death. The booklet note describes this as painful, and you do get the feeling that Takamitsu really felt Messiaen's death deeply, uh, though he doesn't express that through musical emotion, more through a desolate sense of space in the harmony he uses. This is really a very Japanese way of expressing <laughs> that kind of pain. Takemitsu's an interesting character. He learned about Western music and the avant-garde during World War II when, when he was in the military, which he really hated, and Western music was forbidden. One of his um, commanding officers had a set of jazz records, and he got to hear jazz for the first time, and that just rocked his world. Mm. And he then discovered uh, the avant-garde. I think he actually, after the war, was able to go to Europe to study with that, and he became like a pretty much an avant-garde composer in Japan. He did a lot of film scores too, which is what he's most uh, famous for. Um, he did the uh, Kurosawa scores. He worked mm -hmm. a lot with Kurosawa. Shamayu gets a gorgeous, quiet sound on the higher notes here. Very subtle. I haven't heard this in a while, and it's a pretty well-known piece, the Rain Tree Sketch. Uh, my ear has developed since, so this comes across as highly textured rather than as harsh. I used to always hear it as harsh, but it might even be the performance here that's just making it sound beautifully textured. It can be the playing, as I said. Shamayu has a lot of subtlety in his touch and balances the parts well. He also shapes the melodic line in a way that's full of sense for the ear. He has like a sense of what the ear is going to hear. 
The quiet playing at 3 minutes and 18 seconds is subtle and rather magical. Yeah, this is really the best performance ever of that Takamitsu piece that I've ever heard. And I do remember hearing it played live once by Peter Serkin at Boston Symphony Hall at a, at a concert. It was really interesting. Third track, Tristan Murray. Murai, sorry, Tristan Murai. This is called Cloche d'Adieu, which means um, bells of goodbye, or goodbye bells, et un sourire, and a smile, in memoriam Olivia Messiaen, also from 1992. So this piece has what the notes call a sublime, haunting, crystalline sound. Uh, Murai's sense of harmony, of spacing between notes, is intriguing to my ear. He's what's known as a spectral composer, which means his harmony is based on properties of sound rather than any kind of traditional theory. Uh, he relies a lot on harmonics brought into being by his loud, booming bass notes and re-triggered by what's playing high up on the keyboard. This is a spacious piece with not much to hold on to in a traditional sense. Uh, you want to listen into the space and follow the shapes of the harmonized phrases that Mariah composes. I actually love the quality of sound and appreciate how it's used here. Shamayu is deeply sensitive to Mariah's sound world. Listen between the notes for anything long held and enjoy the harmonics. Really a work like this, if you understand what it's after, you'll enjoy it a lot more. You have to sort of bring a little bit of an intellectual understanding to it, unless you're sort of just fa fascinated by sounds on its own, then you'll just like it anyway. <laughs> okay, But it is a challenge. If you're expecting something traditional, <laughs> you're probably not going to like it. Then we get to the Messian work. I have the CD of this. This is like the piece is usually uh, di divided into the first ten movements on CD one, and then the second ten movements on CD two, and that is the case here as well. The first movement, which uh, gives us one of the main themes of this two-hour-long work that we're really going to hear throughout, and might really annoy you after a while, um, the movement is called the Regard du Père. So it's the gaze of the Father on the Son, Jesus, the baby Jesus, l'enfant Jésus. This has a very quiet opening, and we hear the God the Father theme right at the beginning. It's the first thing you hear, the chiming chords and the repeating note. You'll notice that the chiming high note is played a different number of times each time it's heard. It's written to a changing time signature, and this is supposed to evoke the eternity of God, so it's an uncountable, or beyond counting, measure of time. So you, the listener, aren't really able to make it out. The pianist knows what it is because he's reading it from the score. Shamayu actually plays this at a slightly fast speed, connecting all the chords to the repeating high note. He's got an ideal touch for this, and the recorded sound quality is crystal clear. The piano has tremendous presence through the speakers in loud passages, of which we really don't hear many here in this particular movement, but don't worry, we will. Uh, I like the way the repeating note is subtly faded at the end. It's faded by the pianist naturally, not by the recording. Next is Regard de l'Etoile, the gaze of the star. This is the star, I'm guessing, that brought the uh, three uh, magi to uh, Jesus' um, crib on that Christmas long ago. The star's theme can sound banged out in some hands, but here it gets its appropriate loudness, again, in very present sound quality. There's an odd scale figure after the opening theme, played monophonically first, then harmonized. Notice the descending notes sparkle to the star when the loud chords come back. Now, keep in mind that Messiaen is always composing according to colors he sees so that the sparkle to the star probably has a certain color to him and you sort of you, you might want to keep that in mind when you're listening to that descending line 
it's very quiet that comes after the um the loud part shamayu achieves the shimmering effect well and i should mention that the whole rhythmic cycle that keeps bringing back the chord followed by the shimmering sound we hear it again at two minutes and 23 seconds but it's unmissable so different is it in character than the modal scales in the rest of the work which are probably probably based on greek modes i really don't know i haven't really studied this piece that closely the piece and a lot of messian's rhythmic patterns are is most likely based on a hindu rhythmic cycle he does that i'm not sure if this is one but um that could be they're not fast though so you don't really think of them as um Hindu rhythms, because usually when you hear a Hindu rhythmic cycle, you're hearing it on the tabla played very fast, but here it's very slow. Whenever you hear a pattern cycling around the Messian's music, there's probably a Hindu rhythmic cycle involved. Track three is uh, Le Change, which is uh, the exchange. So I guess the father becomes the son. I'm just guessing that here. Very subtle playing at the beginning of this, a light touch from Shamayu, and I'm really impressed by his the quality of his touch really in both loud and soft passages and really all the gradations he gets between. Um, he puts this across really well with gorgeously weighted, subtly crescendoed chords between the loud granitic note patterns. The exchange I seem to recall is God becoming man. And we end, I'd guess with the very emphatic formation of God in a human body. Think about that when you hear the last <laughs> part of this piece. The fourth movement, this is my favorite in the entire work, Regard de la Vierge, the uh, gaze of the Virgin, so Jesus' mother. I've come to love the Virgin's theme in this so much um, after many hearings of this piece. My ear is drawn to the flickering on and off harmonies underneath the gentle descending theme. This is great playing. Everything in the quiet passage re registers so clearly. It's probably my favorite movement of the work, and we get the impression, well, it is my favorite movement of the work, we get the impression that the Virgin's gaze on Jesus is gentle, motherly, and feminine. There's a dance rhythm at two minutes, evoking joy. Whenever you hear this wild rhythm in Messian, it's always joy or some kind of ecstatic sort of uh, moment of joy, usually mystical of some sort. And some colorful chords after that, starting at two minutes and 13 seconds. The Virgin's gentle theme returns in the cycling rhythmic patterns of the movement with some outbursts of joy and concern in parts. There's one bit towards the end that gets a little louder and a little more violent, and she probably sees his eventual crucifixion as well in this looking at him. The fifth um, movement, Regard du Fils sur le Fils, this is um, Jesus looking at himself. This is very clever. Now, when I say Messian sets like Catholic dogma. This is an example. In Catholicism, God is supposed to have three sort of elements, but it's one being. And Messian tries to evoke that by using the Father theme from the uh, first movement. So we hear God the Father theme in this movement, you know, Jesus being God in the Christian tradition. So we get a sense of his um, divine and human nature in musical form. So the divine would be from the Father theme and um, there's also the another theme. Color chords are added to the theme in the high register. They eventually become lightly percussive bird songs. You can hear that at three minutes. Messiaen um, was an avid bird watcher and notated the sound of birds down pretty precisely. So whenever you hear bird songs, they're actual bird songs. They're not just an imitation of birds like you get in Vivaldi or something like that. These bird songs morph back into color chords by the three minutes and 30 seconds mark. 
At 5 minutes and 18 seconds, we're hearing birdsong in the higher register again. Over the chords in the God the Father theme, more stretched out now to incorporate the bird songs in between. Okay, one thing to know about birds, Messiaen was a bird enthusiast, but he also thought that birds had a special place in heaven. They can fly, so they're closer to God than the rest of us, according to him. They're thought of as being heavenly, close to angels for um, Messiaen. So when you hear them, you might want to keep that in mind too. Track six, Par lui tout a été fait. By him, all things were made. So, of course, we hear the God the Father theme here. That's who made everything. We also hear the Amour Mystique theme here. This is a highly percussive movement. It's very monumental and long at 9 minutes and 29 seconds that one gets the impression of planets being thrown around. The staccato bass end of the piano has a tactile presence on the recording, hitting the solar plexus strongly, which is a great feeling. Shamayu achieves remarkable clarity in this highly complex and very loud movement. Astonishingly fast harmonized trills at 2 minutes and 55 seconds too. God doesn't take a break in this movement in his creation process, and neither can the pianist. We get more subtle playing in the quieter, luminous section at 4 minutes and 10 seconds. Notice at 5 minutes and 32 seconds we get the God the Father theme from the first movement in between the monumental creation sounds. So we get, we're having the Father's presence uh, evoked in this creation. I can sense a bit of the descending virgin theme in the material at the 8-minute mark and just before, too. See if you can hear that. The last note is left to die out. Movement 7, this is track 10, Regard de la Croix, the gaze of the cross. Notice the similarity, but not the sameness to this theme, to the God the Father theme. It's a bit weightier, with different darker chords. And also, you might want to contemplate what that means, if the cross theme and the Father theme are similar. Um, I won't tell you. You can think of your own because, you know, it's, it's going to be different for different people. Again, what impact of the bass notes after the two-minute mark? Rich sound produced by Shamayu on these octaves. Track eight, Regard des Auteurs. So from the heights, the gaze from the heights. A swirling arpeggio figure at the beginning, followed by a bird song passage, more chords, and more bird song. So I guess the heights would include the birds. The Auteurs, I guess, yeah includes the birds, smooth otherworldly arpeggios in right and left hands at 48 seconds, beautifully executed. The rhythm patterns repeat for a bit at a minute and 48 seconds with the swirling arpeggiated figure returning. Again, super virtuoso playing on the scales in the high end at the very end of the movement. Track 12, movement 9, Regard du Temps, the gaze of time. I'm always really fascinated by ideas about time. And this one begins uh, very quietly with some intriguing harmony in the chords. We hear lighter figures. Then the opening chords repeat at a minute and 38 seconds. This is a lightly played movement, time being, I'd guess, a quality that's hard to grasp. The movement seems to use a circling rhythmic pattern, probably drawn from Hindu music in its chord rhythm patterns. Movement 10, track 13, the last on CD1. Regard des l'esprit de joie. So the spirit of joy. This is a sort of standard type of um, rhythm and um, approach for Messian. Um, we hear the uh, God the Father theme from um, the first movement. Also, uh, Dance Orientale et Planchantesque. Another hammered out staccato bass. The piece evokes joy, which for Messian is the ecstatic joy of one who has transcended the worldly. You might want to keep that in mind when you're hearing this. He goes all out in these types of movements. 
Uh, listen at around the one minute mark for the astonishing detail, the bass, the light trill. Amazing balancing of parts here. At two minutes and nine seconds, we get a joyous theme reminiscent of Joie de Sang des Etoiles from the Tarangalila Symphony, evoking religious ecstasy through a wild dance rhythm. Shamayu plays this with absolute conviction and achieves the ecstatic effect called for. This calls for some ability, which he demonstrates here. I love the low and very high chord voicings at 4 minutes and 15 seconds and afterwards. Really, I love all the odd chord voicings in this movement. Listen from about 5 minutes and 45 seconds to the ascending chord patterns and how they're voiced. There are a lot of rising patterns in this movement. The rhythm is played from around 7 minutes and 15 seconds to 7 minutes and 40 seconds. is very exciting and has an ecstatic energy to it. The richness of the piano sound is captivating me on the fading bass notes in the eighth minute. And CD1 ends there. And I was exhausted by this point. But there's still ten movements to go, not to mention some encores. I, I, obviously, I did this in two days. I couldn't really <laughs> hear all this at once. It is really exhausting to listen to. Messian's music is monumental. He doesn't do anything small. All of it is big. He's got a four-hour opera called Saint-Francois d'Assise. The Tarangalila Symphony is an hour and a half long and has 10 movements. The last work he wrote that I heard at uh, Avery Fisher Hall back in the day is also is another multi-movement work, a lot of uh, movements. This is probably his biggest, it's certainly his biggest piano work. Anyway, moving on, track one on CD2. This is uh, movement 11, Première Communion de la Vierge, the Virgin's First Communion. So we hear the God the Father theme um, from the first movement. They're played quietly and solemnly with sprinklings of birdsong and a descending theme in a different guise than um, the fourth movement that represents the Virgin. A sensitive touch from Shamayu here, especially in the birdsong. His articulation is, as I've said, astonishingly clear and well captured. At around 2 minutes and 58 seconds, a wild dance rhythm begins, incorporating the God the Father chord, indicating ecstasy, I guess. At 4 minutes and 3 seconds, there's a ferocious upward pattern and some chords in the high end with intriguing harmonies. One can almost imagine the colors Messian saw when writing them. They'd be very vivid. Even the percussive light bass note at 5 minutes uh, doesn't blur in the recording. So careful is the pedaling. The gentle downward notes represent the Virgin at the 6-minute mark. This is juxtaposed with the God the Father chords. Now, I'm, I'm saying all these things. This is very, very complicated, all these things happening at the same time. But they're supposed to sort of be, they're not really supposed to be understandable, but they're supposed to be there for you to sort of contemplate as you hear them, to release your mind into a higher realm, I guess you could say. The second track, uh, movement 12, La Parole Toute Puissante, the all-powerful word. Uh, the word, as we know from the Gospel of John, is Jesus. Again, it's a mystery. The Logos. Jesus is associated with the Logos in the Gospel of John. It's certainly powerful here. Thundering bass note and chords towards the low end of the piano. Uh, the pounding bass note doesn't quite ring as in other movements. It sounds a bit padded, an effect probably achieved by use of the uh, una corda pedal, I'm going to guess. It's all a pretty compelling sound. Uh, the 13th movement is called Noel. We've arrived at Christmas, Jesus' birth. Now, <laughs> if you're thinking this is going to be a Christmas tune, think again. <laughs> <laughs> it's the birth of Jesus, not the season here. That same bass note from the previous movement pounds out here 
as a wild church bell-like figure is heard in the upper range of the piano. Those slightly crescendoing soft chords we heard earlier in the third movement, Le Change, reappear as single notes here. So Le Change, of course, is God the Father becoming God the Son, or however that would happen. The opening figure returns at a minute and 13 seconds. There's a rather attractive chord pattern early in the second minute. The opening pattern returns twice more before the movement ends. At the very end, we hear the Virgin's descending pattern, gazing on Jesus. So he's born. 14th movement, track four, CD2. Regard des anges, so the angels gaze. The angels get a rather loud, wild theme too. Not the way we normally think of angels. <laughs> rather blocky with thundering bass chords or bass notes and circling block chords in the upper range. I should note that muted bass note is now ringing out fully as it did in earlier movements. There's a sort of endless chord pattern that circles around until it's interrupted by bird songs and a rather interesting trill in the very low bass and very high notes of the piano. Then at 2 minutes and 10 seconds, there's a rhythm articulating chords. I love the smooth transition to more rippling arpeggiated figures at 2 minutes and 50 seconds. There's a bird song juxtaposed with the angel circling theme, this time notes rather than chords. I guess uh, birds and angels both have wings, so they're all flying. The balance between voices Shamayu achieves seems preternatural here. It's amazing. Patterns in this work repeat in a cyclic pattern. Another thing about Messiaen's music I should mention is his music doesn't develop. So for some people, it's not going to be musically interesting for that reason, because you want to hear where the chords are going to be brought. Rather, he gets a pattern, there's a section, there's another section, and they're really kind of, there's almost like a vertical line kind of separating them. They just suddenly change. They don't really morph or elide into each other. His um, forms are very blocky. 15th uh, movement? <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> the 15th movement. Oh, man. This is uh, track 5, CD2. Le baiser de l'enfant Jésus. This is the um, the kiss of the infant Jesus. We hear the God the Father theme. A very gentle rendering of it, now resolving into a resting chord at the end of phrases. I wouldn't call it a cadence, but it comes across like a comma followed by a period, like sort of a sentence that ends. This continues for minutes. By the fourth minute, birdsong has been added, as well as a countermelodic line to the repeating chord pattern. All is peace and gentleness. Again, Shamayu's astonishing ability to subtly change patterns, making one sound as if they're naturally growing from each other. Also, part of Messiaen's writing, of course, is a real pleasure to hear. This happens in the section after five minutes. By the six minute and 43 second mark, we're getting loud chords, then bass and high chords. The different motifs we're hearing by the end overlap and become complex, like at the eight minute mark. We reach a climax, then quiet God the Father chords and rippling scale figures bring us to a gentle, quietly chiming ending, beautifully realized. Movement 16, track six. Regard de prophète, de berger et de mage. The uh, gaze of the prophets, the shepherds, and the magi. There's a thundering bass note. Again, it's kind of muted, probably by use of the pedals, not ringing cleanly, with a circling carillon-type chord pattern. At a minute and seven seconds, a repeating pattern is heard several times. It's interrupted, then resumes with a counter melody. This is very complex writing. 
we have the thundering bass note over crescendoing circling chords le leading us to two more brief patterns that end the piece. Movement 17, Regarde du silence, so the gaze of silence. A tranquil set of chords played quietly and with a chiming quality. The chords are, of course, filled with color notes. At a minute and 33 seconds, louder chords erupt from the pattern. Then we get some different figures lined up in the way Messian will do, one after the other. This continues throughout the movement, with new sections being added. It's a lot to follow. The movement ends quietly. Movement 18, Regard de l'Anxion Terrible, the anointing oil, I guess. Uh, this has a quiet descending theme with ominous bass notes at the beginning. They start climbing as the chords descend. There's a crescendo, the bass notes rise, the upper chords are arpeggiated and fall. These turn to block chords at 50 seconds, all sounding solid and intimidating. There are some smooth sounding open harmonies in these chords, unusual for this piece and for Messiaen in general. The color chords eventually comes back, they come back at about 3 minutes and 10 seconds. The open fifths chords return though, with figuration between their appearances. The number and speed of the chords quickens by 5 minutes and 30 seconds. We get high chords with a lot of color notes up to 5 minutes and 58 seconds, then booming open fifths with figuration in the high end, then rising color chords. The pattern sections follow each other rapidly until we get a series of rapid ascending chords that end the movement. And we get to movement 19. Now I know what you're saying. You're saying, ah, movement 19, only two movements to go. But these two movements together last about 20 minutes long. <laughs> so they're both, they're both very long. Track 9, movement 19, is called Je dors mais mon cœur veille, uh, which means I sleep but my heart keeps guard or watches. This has the Amour Mystique theme, a very gentle opening. We can hear the God the Father chords referenced in there. I'd guess the upper pattern is the heart keeping watch while the gentle bass is the sleeping person. Though I'd say this isn't a tone painting, more a mood or a realization of a spiritual image. The God the Father theme fragments indicate the heart is keeping watch for God's coming and mystical love. At 2 minutes and 24 seconds, a more jolting chord pattern emerges but immediately calms down. I love the chiming chords at about six minutes and five seconds. The character subtly changes here and is now calming. At seven minutes and 24 seconds, when it seems we've reached the end, some quiet material previously heard makes one more appearance. And then finally, the last movement of the work, movement 20, uh, Regard de l'Église d'Amour, the uh, gaze of the Church of Love. Kind of has like a 1960s kind of title, doesn't it? I don't know. Theme from the uh, God the Father theme is magnified here. We hear the Amour Mystique theme. Of course, Messiaen is going to leave us with the longest, biggest movement of the piece. In the first 30 seconds, a lot of different patterns are heard, one after the other. Then there's a 20-second crescendo with circling bass chords, and we go through the crescendo again. They arrive at some of the God the Father chords, played loudly. Previous material from several movements is heard in different guise here. So this work, this movement is kind of a summary of everything, or everything is collected under the, uh, the gaze of the l'Église d'Amour. A lot is brought together in the Church of Love, including brief bits of bird song. And we have reached the end of the Vent Regard de l'Enfant Jésus. But on this recording, we get two encores, and they're both pretty interesting. Track 11 is uh, George Courtag. A contemporary composer, he's pretty old now, though. This is called Humble, 
Humble Regards sur Olivier Messiaen, written in 1993, so the year after Messiaen's death. It's brief and restrained, as the title implies, very quiet, with a padded attack. Probably the una corda pedal is down. That's the pedal on the left of the piano. And lots of sustain on the notes, which are left to fade on their own. It's very brief, at a minute and ten seconds. And then a very interesting work by Jonathan Harvey called um, Tombeau de Messiaen for piano and digital audio tape uh, from 1994. This has an apocalyptic quality to it. Uh, this is quite an ending to this really demanding and challenging album. Some different sounds with the introduction of the audio tape. This starts with a very low bass note, followed by electronic manipulation of the piano sound and other atmospheric rumblings courtesy of the audio tape. We hear a set of chords with Messian chord voicings make their way across the keyboard at the minute mark. Then more electronic manipulation, making the piano sound a bit like steel drums at a minute and 43 seconds in. The Messian chords are electronically manipulated the next time we hear them in the second minute. Electronic manipulation and subtle tape-sustained sounds permeate the next section of the piece. The sound at 4 minutes and 56 seconds is pretty cool, featuring a long sustained chord sounding like it's in an enclosed metal space. The electronics become more pronounced as the piece goes on. Listen at 5 minutes and 50 seconds. It gets pretty wild by the 7 minute and 30 second mark with electronics and faster and louder chord patterns on the piano. Until there's a metallic ringing sound at the 8 minute and 4 second mark that releases us back to the sound of the regular piano. The piece ends on a chaotic chord pattern that moves downward and suddenly ends. Oh boy, we're finally there at the end of this uh, description of this very long and very demanding album. I have to say, this is now my go-to recording of this uh, Messian work. It's so beautifully and sensitively realized by Shamayu that I see myself revisiting it often. Well, not as often as I would other works because <laughs> I really have to be in that really wanting to sit down and concentrate sort of mood. The album is a good way to contemplate the mystery of Jesus' birth and divine nature at Christmas time if you're of an intellectual bent to do so. Though I wouldn't consider it a Christmas piece, it's really for year-round. Shamayu really put everything he has into this performance, and his range of tones and dynamics is astonishing. Also, a palm to the engineers. I'm going to name them. Uh, Damien Quintar, who's also the producer. Arnaud Merkling and Swan Gravouille. There are three engineers on this uh, recording. I wonder what they all did. Usually there's only one. The works on the album aren't easy listening, but neither is understanding the mystery of God. In fact, understanding the mystery of God is a lifelong or probably several lifetimes of work, and it's not really an intellectual pursuit. But uh, this album will, re will repay a lifetime of listening, I think, or this piece. The work is monumental, and it repays a lifetime of listening. Take it from me. I've been fascinated with it since I was in my 20s. I'm amazed and a bit crazy about this album, to be honest. Some of the best recorded piano sound I've ever heard on it, and appropriately judged for this piece. Again, it's this really isn't for anybody, everybody. If you've um, never heard Messiaen before, you'd want to start with uh, Quartet for the End of Time, I would think, and work your way up to this. Because a, it, once you get his language under your belt, you can approach this uh, with a little more confidence. But if you know Messiaen's music, I would absolutely listen to this. If you don't like it, I doubt you'll grow to like it in any other pianist's hands. Whatever happened to that girlfriend who had to listen to this uh, recording? She broke up with me. 
Well, I admit, while I was working my way through this, I was plotting my revenge on you by thinking of a program of jazz suites and extended atonal free jazz improvisation. I, I would listen to the atonal stuff, but the, the jazz suite is another story. I might have to, that might really put me off. Anyway. You know, to really understand this in all honesty, I would need a guide. Uh, yeah. Like you say, it would mm, be nice if exactly. there was something. Uh, the most I could get out of I, it. I've read books on him, but not on this piece. So yeah. I got it. Yeah. Is to focus my attention to identify the recurring themes yes. and how they're presented differently. Mm-hmm. And then to try to comprehend his musical language because it's really quite different. Uh, like yeah. you say, it makes sense that it's color based. It's not that it's atonal, it's just that uh, he has his own kind of sense of harmony that sometimes crosses into traditional Western harmony, but often has these added color tones and, right. and things that are completely unrelated. And so mm-hmm. you're kind of living on two planes of existence. Maybe that goes along with you know, the sort well, of spiritual go. and uh, material right. worlds crossing over each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few moments when it's actually quite pretty, but it doesn't last mm. long. And then something else comes in that you have to, you know, get adjusted to. I mean, listening to this is a feat of endurance, so I can only imagine yeah. playing it. Maybe that's why there's three engineers. They had to take shifts to <laughs> maintain the attention but, focus. Yeah, but the pianist had to play all of it. Yeah, this sounds like a real challenge. Can you imagine like hearing this in a, even in a concert? That's, oh, that's a long yeah. concert. Concerts usually mm. aren't even two hours long. So it's a great marathon of uh, performance uh, by Shamayo yeah. to do this. Uh, it it mm. must take uh, just the concentration alone, uh, let alone the dynamic playing that he does here. Uh, right. But it's a beast of something to stay focused on and listen to at the same time. Yeah. You know, maybe you should write a guide. You should write the guide to this if there doesn't uh, It would take uh, a lot of work, though. I'd, I'd need to get yeah. the score and kind of really figure out everything. But I don't know. Yeah, there, there, There's probably a guide out there somewhere. Probably in French, but not to say. Well, it's certainly a unique, you know, his his musical language is something all onto itself. Yeah, the funny thing about him is there are other composers that use his chords, like uh, there's George Sontakis, I've heard works by him, and he'll use Messian chords, and whenever you hear it, you you immediately think Messian. It's amazing, he has chords that just sound like him, like mm-hmm. if anybody else uses them, they sound like, it's a, it's really quite a, an achievement to actually be able to do that. Oh, this is Messian's chord. No one else can use this without evoking him. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, lighten up the atmosphere a bit. That was pretty heavy talking and mm. going. Let's see what we got here. These were very enjoyable jazz recordings, I have to say. Hey, jazz time. You know, I was thinking just to squeeze out some things from various categories that uh, I remembered liking when I listened to them. And what I've got for you, if you haven't listened to it already, is a really great set of recordings, uh, no relation to each other other than they're all really interesting, exciting, and fun to listen to in their own way. We're going to start with a recording that has a couple familiar names to us as adult music here, and another new name that we haven't played, but altogether it comes out in a really tasteful recording. It's called Time Will Tell on Leica Records, and it's by... Well, the headlining names are a duo, Ulf Meyer and Martin Wind, two German musicians who were both born and grew up in Germany's northernmost city, Flensburg, 
which is located on the tip of a fjord from the Baltic Sea. It's only a couple of miles from the Danish border. And they started playing together way back in 1991, recorded the year after that, and they have a, a bunch of recordings together. So they've been playing a long time. Uh, also on this recording on drums is Alex Riel. He's a well-known Danish drummer. And the other name that drew me to this recording is a young pianist who I'm really crazy about listening to. Uh, I think he's one of the most exciting young players out there today. And that's Billy Test, who's uh, from Pennsylvania. But he's had the piano chair in the WDR Big Band in Germany since 2018. And he's also a really good organ player. You can see him with the WDR Big Band on some YouTube videos playing organ. And he's uh, an alumni of William Patterson University, where he studied under Mulgrew Miller. Now, we've listened to Test before for the podcast. His debut album as a leader last year, Coming Down Roses, that was in episode 32, Trio of Trios and Visionaries, and that made our best of 2021 recording list. Mm. And we also heard Martin Vind with his My Astorian Queen, <laughs> uh, episode oh, right. 47, uh, Broken Bass, because he's been on the New York jazz scene for uh, several decades now. And that was an enjoyable recording as well. So here we've got this quartet format, and we've got some uh, interesting selections of familiar old tunes and a lot of originals here. Uh, we're going to start out with Django, the John Lewis tune. And this was written way back, uh, let's see, 1954. And so John Lewis was the pianist and musical director of the Modern Jazz Quartet. And so this is written in uh, as a tribute to, of course, uh, Django Reinhardt, the Belgian jazz guitarist. And so you may have heard this tune. It's been covered by a lot of artists. Uh, it starts out with a rubato solo guitar opening from Meyer. And it sounds like he's playing a nylon string guitar here. And I've seen him in videos using a Godin, uh, which is a guitar I most often use. I don't have a nylon one, but I have an A6 Ultra. Uh, but you can tell the tone is uh, a little different on this tune. It's a, it's a rich tone and a mournful sound on this melody when it begins. Wind joins in, giving a slow tempo at about 40 seconds in with the bass notes as uh, Meyer takes it around the melody. Then Test and Riel enter softly on the last note of the first melody section. And they had a little pause before continuing to the next section, now with light drum brushwork and piano chords. Now Meyer takes the first solo. It's got relaxed phrasing, and the sound of this guitar really rings out warmly. Now if you know the modern jazz quartet version, you know that there's a section that where it picks up in tempo and it gets a nice groove going uh, in this tune. And they do that as well here. Uh, Meyer really digs in. He gets bluesy with some great snappy licks, slides, punchy chords. Things settle back down, and Test is up next. He has some really nice lines that build harmonic tension as he starts out, and he gets more rhythmic and bluesy. Some great synchronized two-hand lines and figures, and then he really hammers out some chiming chords to build a climax. They bring it back quiet and soft for Meyer to take another round of the melody. Track two is a Meyer original called October Blues, and Tess starts this out with a repeating fast G note. Uh, Meyer joins in on that with the guitar note as well. The piano note stays as a kind of pedal tone as Meyer and Wind 
work together on syncopated changing chords for a 16-bar intro. And Riel has a nice light cymbal riding there. Then the melody itself has short phrases that the guitar and piano work together, and then they alternate with kind of guitar and bass uh, phrases. And when he's not working along with the guitar, Test keeps that G going uh, otherwise as that pedal tone. Uh, it's a fun kind of melody that has a forward pushing quality to it. Uh, however, for the solo section, it switches up feel to more of a straight ahead swing uh, with Vin's walking bass and a 12 bar blues structure. And Meyer solos first again here, and now he's on the steel string, uh, more jazzy guitar tone for this tune. The tone of his guitar is very upfront uh, most of the time, although there is variation in the in the tune, so it doesn't have a sort of back in the reverb quality to it. Uh, he plays a nice mix of bouncy blues licks here, fast runs, double stop rhythmic ideas, and kind of scratchy strums. Test follows, teasing with a bit more of space and then hanging harmonies for a chorus as Vin changes up the walk to a more static rhythmic bass uh, the next time around. And he's back up on the uh, next chorus and then it takes off on some harmonically adventurous lines, mixed in with more bluesy percussive chord ideas on the piano. Uh, he works up to some really rollicking percussive playing and then some ringing high bluesy type of figures. It's just great playing. Uh, Test always knocks me out with his solos. Yeah. Uh, Vin gets a solo next and he keeps it rhythmic and bluesy. Some great high register licks along the way. And they bring it back to the pedal tone idea for a reset and a run through the melody to the end. Track three is a Martin Vind original, Solitude. Uh, there's an eight-bar intro with a ringing ostinato bass from Vind, soft piano chords from Test, and soft brushwork from Real. Meyer comes in on the minor and longing melody. Uh, the final section of the melody has an interesting lift with a pretty major chord in the 19th bar. And if I'm following it correctly, it's got an unusual phrase length of 23 bars. And that stays for the form for the solos as well. Vin comes in on a bowed bass solo. He gets some really eerie high harmonic tones and then some lower phrases, all very smooth and legatoly phrased. Tess gets two times around for a solo, starting with soft phrases that he builds into ringing chords and then more melodic lines. And he continues with some interval ideas into waves of lines, chiming chords. Meyer follows with a fluid and melodic solo, and you get some cool bouncy rhythms and creative interval ideas on the second time around. Uh, great solos all around here, and then Vin takes the melody for a final run, uh, Meyer taking over from the 17th bar with a few final phrase repeats and high tinkles from Test to close it out. Another Vin original for track four, Maya, and Vin starts it out solo and very rubato on the bass, uh, keeping multiple lines of rhythmic figures and melody going. Sort of got uh, two independent ideas moving along here, and Tess joins in lightly on the piano with chords and light fills, and then Vin gives it a little syncopated snap to the movement to bring in Riel and Meyer just after a minute. It gets a light Latin groove with a bass chug, and Meyer playing fluid improvised lines into a round of the melody, locking in tightly with test on the phrases. He continues on for a fluid but rhythmic solo with a little tasty reverb added to the sound here. Uh, test solos next with rhythmic and ringing phrases, then Meyer and Test trade more rounds of soloing before returning to the melody together again. And Meyer comes back soloing once more with more pearly sounding phrases into some driving accented high notes and some softer lines to end it. Track 5 is another Meyer original and it's called On My Sofa. 
It's a slow ballad uh, hmm. with Meyer taking the melody over great ringing bass notes from wind. In addition to piano chords, Test has some subtle swelling organ phrases behind the guitar melody. Test solos first, showing some really pretty phrases, a great sense of touch and dynamics. And Meyer follows him, starting gently, working up to some great tumbling lines of notes, more biting bluesy phrases and double stopped lines. Tess pushes him with the organ swells behind. Meyer connects it back to the melody and continues on, and listen to the slowdown with guitar and bass notes filled by pretty ascending figures from Test. Track 6, a tune by Seymour Lefko, You Look Good to Me. Seymour Lefko was known as the uh, jazz dentist uh, <laughs> from Milwaukee. Uh, he he was a for some reason sought out as a dentist of many jazz musicians. He tutored at a high school and was an avid jazz pianist and composer. Hence this tune, and he was a member of the uh, American Society of Composers and Publishers. And this tune was first recorded by uh, the Oscar Peterson Trio in 1964. Uh, it's kind of a catchy tune. It starts with a cute rubato 16-bar intro with Vin's bowed bass and Test's single-note piano lines outlining the melody and chords. Uh, after a pause, Rio gets it going in tempo with some tight brushwork on the snare. Uh, Vind is back really bringing out the melody on plucked bass over the soft drums and guitar and piano chords, working in some great bluesy and rhythmic final phrases. Meyer takes over for a run or a run in solo with snappy phrases, and Reel switches up to the ride cymbals with Vind getting a chugging walk going. And Test is up next, starting with cute high ringing phrases. He works up the intensity, adding some great snappy triplet lines and then some two-handed synced ideas into great rollicking bluesy things uh, before bringing it back uh, to another round through the opening cute piano figures to end it. It's a fabulous piano solo on this tune. Uh, please give this young pianist some love, all you jazz critics and magazines. Yeah. I think he's up for great things in the future. Track seven is Lost Friend, a Martin Vind original. It's a slow, kind of gospely waltz tune. Real gets a nice tight hi-hat beat with a click on beat three going, and Test has electric piano here, and also some subtle organ going on uh, during the 16-bar intro. There's some tasty bendy guitar lines from Meyer uh, working into the 24-bar melody. He continues on soloing, and he's got a little more edge to his tone, kind of rockier feel, you know, a little harshness there in the tone, which fits the tune, and also a biting articulation. Again, nice organ swells behind from Test, who then surprisingly switches to acoustic piano for his solo, but it works well with great ringing notes, intense percussive playing, and some bluesy ideas thrown in as well. And Meyer returns for another run through the melody, and he gets an outro that mirrors the intro section uh, and a chance to add a few more tasty guitar lines. Track 8's another Meyer tune called Do Dee Dee. That's D O O D I D E E. Meyer gets it going himself with a bouncy eight bar guitar intro. Vinda Test adds some intervals to season it. Uh, Meyer takes the melody and it's a lightly swinging A A B A form with uh, more of a swing ride on the cymbals, uh, pushing the swing on the B section. There's also an extra four bar section 
after the last A that sort of extends the form. Uh, Meyer continues on for a couple times around soloing. Uh, great swinging phrases here, some little bluesy nuggets along the way too, and I really love his clear articulation on the guitar, especially on this piece. Uh, Tess follows with a solo that has cool chasing run ideas, phrases repeated between hands, and enthusiastic chiming chords. Vind gets a bouncy melodic bass solo, next with some great fast triplets and a little nod to Charlie Parker on the way. And Meyer and Tess trade eights with Riel to get in some drum soloing before Meyer takes it for another run through the melody with a short little final vamp to close it out. We close it up with a title track, a Meyer original, Time Will Tell. It's a sparse and somber rubato piano opening from Billy Tess to start it out. It gets more harmonically lush with a sense of forward motion before settling a bit and then getting a steady tempo from Vin's bass, a soft hi-hat from Riel. Meyer adds the simple and melancholy melody line on the nylon string guitar again here. The melody goes through a lifting transition of harmonies in the middle of the song, creating a kind of uh, sense of hope and intensity uh, before they repeat the initial section. Uh, Test adds some subtle organ to the mix here as well. It's kind of a pretty much composed piece. There's not a lot of you know, soloing going on here, but it's a pretty composition and a nice ending to the recording. And that's it. It's a fine and classy jazz recording, I think. Uh, Meyer and Vind has recorded a lot together, and they have a great sort of synergy and communication quality together. Uh, Riel's a subtle drummer, and he adds just what's needed to match the mood of each tune. I like the varied guitar tones and the two tunes with the nylon string for extra variety, as well as Test's addition of electric piano and those subtle little organ parts that add variety to the timbre of the recording. There's a nice mix of originals, a few familiar favorite tunes, uh, great solos all around, and especially from Billy Test's exciting piano playing. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this recording. Yeah, you used the word classy, and that's exactly the word I used to say this too. I said yeah. that this album was uh, sophisticated, classy, and grown up. So adult, perfect yeah. for our podcast. Yeah. I thought it was extremely tasteful playing, and uh, that's something I really value. So I was really kind of happy mm. to hear that. Uh, this album actually picked up steam as it went, I thought. I liked it more and more as it went on. I hear like uh, just little teardrops in some of the details. I really enjoyed uh, <laughs> the, the little emotion that came through in some bits. Just it, it's passing, but you got to keep an ear out. For example, the bowed bass in Solitude, the song Solitude, yeah. was a good example of that. When the bass solos, even in October Blues, his vibrato, he gets like a vibrato when he sustains his tone. He adds a lot of feeling to his yeah. playing that you don't usually hear in jazz. So I was kind of really drawn to that. He impressed me the most, although, because um, uh, what, what he was doing leapt out at me. But I, And I like, like you, I like Billy Test piano playing a lot. You introduced me to him. And I was glad to hear his takes on all these tunes, too. He gets a lot of uh, classical feel when he wants to as well. So he can go... He can get the, the really bluesy or swing yeah. rhythm, and then he can get a real classical feel as well, which is nice to hear. Yeah, it's very versatile. It sounds great on this recording, too. It just really yeah. leaps out at you. I like the care taken over the transitions from intro to the main part of the tune, as in You Look Good to Me, when the bass morphs the piano's sensitive intro into a swing feel. Mm. Over a few bars, there's a lot of really like classy touches, sophisticated touches like that throughout the album. It's really uh, good for the brain and the as well as the ear. And uh, I think this is going to be a keeper for me. Um, there is a CD of this coming out on January 6th, but it's already oh. on streaming. Mm. Yeah, I checked it out on Amazon and got it. Ready to 
ready to go. <laughs> yeah, because this one is, yeah. let's see, it came out on uh, October 21st, so it's been around for a little right. while. And yeah. uh, I really wanted to share this one with everyone because uh, the more I listened to it, I just picked up on all those little, you know, mature and classy kind of uh, playing details. So Yeah, and I want to say mature and classy is a quality that we don't get much of in our uh, digitized world, shall we say, especially <laughs> if we're spending a lot of time online. So do yourself a favor and just kind of, you know, at least use this record as a remedy to that. You know, it's, there's yeah. a lot more to it. It's just going to make you feel good. It's a good, it's a really good record. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad you liked it as much as I did. Now the next recording, I know we both like a lot and you're going to like yeah. it too. <laughs> I took to this one right away. Because as we say here, you can never have enough or too much Barry Sachs. And you're going to yeah. get a lot of it on this recording. New Beginnings by Jason Marshall. This came out November 18th. Marshall uh, arrived in New York around 2003 and uh, got uh, quite a reputation as a, uh, a player with a big sound and uh, big personality in his playing. His yeah. influences on Barry Sachs uh, include Leo Parker, Nick Brignola from my old neck of the woods. I used to go see him play or go to one of his clinics whenever he was uh, around and Bruce Johnstone. He's got a lot of the other influences, too. Uh, studied with some other Barry players we've had on our podcast. Ronnie Kuber, who passed away just recently. And Gary Smiley, uh, who mm. we just heard from a, a few weeks ago, too. But uh, he's also had uh, teachers uh, from other sex players, uh, alto players, Bruce Williams, Mark Gross, uh, Vincent Herring, another favorite player of mine, and tenor players Greg Tardy, Wayne Escoffery, and others. Uh, I first knew his playing when he was with uh, Roy Hargrove's big band, and we'll hear a little taste of that on this recording as well. But uh, his style and uh, the playing on this recording has got that hard-swinging, forward-moving energy of baritone saxophone uh, with this giant soulful sound. And uh, we've got uh, some really good interpretations of other sax players of famous tunes as well as his own original composition on here and this recording was recorded at the van gelder recording studio so you can soak up all that history of great recordings it must create a good kind of vibe yeah, in the studio sounds like it got on the album um, yeah spe speaking of history i really like the uh, retro uh, red tinted cover of the album as well with the yeah. picture of uh marshall on it yeah, it's a good album cover really cool. on Cellar Live, by the way. Mm. Uh, we've mm. done a lot of their recordings recently. So Jason Marshall on the Big Barry saxophone, Mark Carey on piano, Gerald Cannon on bass, and Willie Jones III on drums. And we're going to start out with the Joe Henderson classic, Record Me. And all right, you're going to get a sense right away of Marshall's tough sound uh on the original <laughs> idea he puts for the 16-bar uh, intro. You know, everyone knows this Joe Henderson classic tune, which, by the way, he wrote when he was only 15 years old. He gets this rhythmic riff idea going right away with some help from uh, Willie Jones, adding in a clicky drum assistance. And then they go around the 16-bar uh, melody twice, gets the usual kind of bossa beat to it. It just sounds great on Marshall's full-throated berry tone, uh, and he continues on into a solo. 
His lines are melodic, a nice mix of legato phrasing, a few staccato phrases for variety, scoops down low a bit too into that powerful lower register. We all want to hear that on the berry. On the third time around, the 16 bar pattern, he makes it bluesy, reaches up in the higher register a bit. Kerry gets a piano solo next. He starts at light, kind of clear, separated notes, and Cannon gets around on bass next. Rhythmic, sometimes bluesy in the lower range of the big bass. And Marshall brings back the opening riff for a couple go-arounds. I thought that was a cool touch too on the verse pattern. And he gives Jones the second half uh, to get in some drum work. They take it around the melody two more times to finish it up with some repeats of the final phrase. It's a simple and effective arrangement and I really liked the return of the riff after the solos. I'm going to standard uh, Rogers and Hart. I could write a book for track two. Uh, a bouncy solo eight bar opening from Carey gets it going into an energetic swing. It's got nice brush work from Jones on the snare. Marshall plays the melody with his husky and happy tone over Cannon's bouncy bass below. And it comes out swinging from the solo break. This solo swings really hard and has some great lower reaches to it. Lines bursting with energy. Carey's in a swinging mood too. He has some fun, playful, high rhythmic right hand figures on the way before digging in more with percussive chords to support his lines. And Marshall and Carey then trade force with Jones for a round before taking another run through the melody with a few final phrases of repeat to the end. And we've got the Sonny Rollins tune for track three, Erigen, which is Nigeria spelled backwards if you don't know this tune. Oh. Uh, it's a sax classic here. Uh, they give it a four bar drum intro before the famous melody riff which gets uh, the gaps plugged by Jones's drum fills. Uh, Marshall comes charging out for a solo here too, swinging super hard, full of ideas that barely seem to be able to escape the horn mm. in time. Uh, he has really cool rhythmic licks and a high cry on the way in this one. Carries energized for a solo here, and I like how he builds on shorter phrases at first and then has some rhythmic fun near the end of the solo. And Jones gets a drum solo, some furious stick work going on before they run through uh, the melody once more. I just think after I hear this tune, there should be like a t-shirt that says, every tune sounds better on Barry. <laughs> Take any tenor <laughs> sax tune, put it on Barry. Just got that extra little kind of punch. I wonder why it. more people don't play it. I guess it's not as sexy, but I think it sounds sexy. I like the sound of I it. I like it. Yeah, me too. And we've got another familiar old tune here, Black Orpheus, uh, Luis Bonfa tune. Gets a nice Latin 6-8 feel for this great melody. Marshall makes it a bit sultry here. A little bit of vibrato in his tone. I like that. Carry solos first with a nice touch on clear high notes and then chiming chords. Marshall's solo has great phrasing over the 6-8 feel, and he works in some bluesy phrases and smoking double-time licks, too. Carrie lets the chords ring out underneath. Marshall keeps blowing and ties it right back to another round of the melody, and they work the intro idea for a few repeats as an outro to a slowdown with some nice drum accents and piano trickles at the end. Track five's the Mingus tune, Peggy's Blue Skylight. It's a nice, easy swinging feel for the stop time melody. Again, nice brush work from Jones under Marshall's melody. It's got a great chugging feel to it. Uh, listen to Cannon's bass work, mixing up different rhythmic patterns underneath. Uh, Marshall solos first, keeps things melodic and swinging, and then getting a lot of fiery double time lines going. He pulls it back into some more simple, melodic higher lines to finish up. Carrie has a solo with nice rhythmic punch to it, and Cannon's bass solo has a good bounce to his melodic lines. And there's a final round of the melody to wrap things up. And we're going to get the Marshall original, Ms. Garvey, Ms. Garvey. 
there's a four-bar intro from the trio with some bluesy trills from Carrie into the ripping bluesy 16-bar minor blues melody that they take around two times. If it sounds familiar, you may have heard it on Roy Hargrove's 2009 Emergence Big Band record where Marshall was uh, heard on Barry Sachs. Marshall milks all the blues there is out of this one, featuring some cool higher register work and a great low honk. Uh, Carrie gets it uh, mixed up with some rollicking blues and percussive rhythmic bluesy piano. And they take it around the melody again to a little extended ending with a great low honk. It sounds like a low C on the berry uh, into the final lick. Uh, just a really fun tune. Track seven, Fallen Feathers by Quincy Jones. This is a tune that's built around the, the opening lick to Charlie Parker's uh, Parker's Mood, which was kind of a recorded uh, improvised B-flat blues 1948. So obviously the Fallen Feathers refers to the untimely passing of uh, Charlie Parker, known as Bird. It was uh, famously recorded by alto saxophonist uh, Cannonball Adderley. A lot of other recordings out there of it too. It's a 32-bar AABA construction. Uh, it's got a like a ballad feel, minor key. Uh, Marshall gets to show off a softer side of his playing here. Uh, he takes it through the melody tenderly with a touch of vibrato. Uh, Carrie gets a short solo over eight bars of the A section. Then Marshall takes the repeat of that, blowing with relaxed phrasing and attack, but with a few double-time phrases and some low-range reaches. He returns to the melody for the B section and the final A section of the form, with a little pause for some solo sax before the final note and some trickles from Carrie. This is fine ballad playing on the big berry horn, a nice soft support from the trio, delicate brushing from Jones, and it sounds like uh, Kennan sneaks in the bow on the bass uh, for the last note, adding a little richness there. Track eight is I'll Never Stop Loving You. This is a tune by Nicholas Brodsky. I had lyrics by Sammy Kahn uh, as a tune for the 1955 film Love Me or Leave Me, and this tune became a hit for Doris Day. Hmm. The trio gives it an eight-bar intro with an interesting feel, bouncy bass from Cannon and springy piano from Carey. Then we're off on an energetic swing when Marshall comes in on the melody. I like the click in the swinging drum groove that Jones adds. It's a happy 32-bar melody in the strong middle range of the Barry horn. Uh, Marshall rips out of the solo break with a sassy, rising, bluesy lick. His solo has a nice balance of happy melodic phrases mixed with more bluesy ideas. Carrie's piano solo has a happy bounce, good melodic lines, and some nice percussive chords. And Marshall returns for another round of the melody, and it gets a coda for him to uh, get a little bit more blowing in, finishing up with some nice building melodic lines to the end. That's it. It's a real, you know, this is meat and potatoes, post-bop yep. jazz, but in the best way possible. It right. shows that, you know, in the right hands, this familiar material uh, groove can still sound exciting and fresh. And uh, they do that well here. You know, maybe it's more like, uh, I said meat and potatoes, it's more like great barbecue. You get that <laughs> good smoky flavor, you know, yeah. and you do it right. But then you also have that little extra tangy sauce for the ribs. And yeah. it brings it out. And uh, the it's an age-old technique, too. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. The menu's well-balanced here. Always good. A few standards, uh, some originals by famous sax players uh, that we all know and love. And then we've got Marshall's own 
bluesy Miss Garvey, Miss Garvey. He's got a gutsy sound, lines bursting with ideas that keep you listening with excitement all the way through. Carey has a nicely kind of contrasting, slightly lighter piano style and touch uh, in his solos. It's just the right grooves and textures from Cannon and Jones. And what more do you want? As we say at Adult <laughs> Music, you can never have enough Barry Sachs. And Jason Marshall goes on our list of favorites on the big horn. I would say that too. Marshall, he, he's, I like his really active approach. He's got this big full tone and he's really a busy player. Like he plays a lot and he's kind of mm. like, I guess, you know, he's got a lot of flowing ideas and he's not afraid to hang out occasionally in his lowest range, which really attracts me to the baritone sax. See, I just really enjoyed that whole sound. One thing about this out that bugged me, but not enough to not get the albums. I actually bought this because <laughs> I liked it so much. But one thing that bugged me is that uh, from track to track, the piano seems like it's placed at a different distance from the microphone. It, was just, mm. it became noticeable to me. Like sometimes he was fairly close, but not up front. And other times he seemed far away, like in uh, Ms. Garvey, Ms. Garvey and in Record Them at the first um, track. So I don't know. I guess it has to do with... Uh, microphone placement for whatever reason. It wasn't enough to really stop me from getting the album, though, because I really dug this a lot. I, I think my dad would like this, actually, hmm. if he still listens to the baritone sax. He, he was a big fan of it when he was much younger, apparently. Oh. Give him a shout-out there. Yeah. To get this. Yeah. Mike's dad. Get him, yeah. get, send him a copy for Christmas. Yeah, tell him to listen to it. I don't know if he has a CD player. <laughs> I don't know how he listens to music. I don't, I really don't know because they're. I'm I'm the, I'm the musical fanatic in my family. No one else. I mean, they like music, but they don't really kind of take much of an interest mm. in it. You know, in the way that I do. It's hard to say. Yeah. But uh, what did you think of the piano? Did you pick up? I didn't that piano notice thing? that. I didn't yeah. notice it. Yeah. yeah. I'll okay. check it out. Well, just, it's I something I kind of was sort of like. Oh, that's really weird. Hmm. I would have liked it to be in like the same place every track but it doesn't really well, it didn't bother me it sounds that much better than, noticed it. than Rudy yeah. Van Gelder's old piano recordings you know, <laughs> always sounded They're like the, right? the yeah. piano was like uh, you know underwater or uh, had some pillows stuffed into it somewhere else I, <laughs> you know? those old those old jazz recordings everybody says like sound so great and they do they're well recorded they have like a natural warm sound but on a lot of them the piano is kind of like like in one channel and it just feels like it's the image I always got was like they they put the piano in a closet, you know, and you'd you'd mm. be in this house and you'd hear this piano playing, and you'd open the closet, there'd be that pian this pianist in there going, "Hey, you know, <laughs> you know." I like it when it's of course, yeah, but it just sounded like it was distant and some oh, tracks I'll check it out. closer. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't notice it when I was listening to it. All right, and the final recording. This is a new one. Uh, it just came out December second, and once in a while I hear something that kind of really blows me away, and this record. Uh, hit me on a d bunch of different levels and it's a really hard one to try to explain yeah. uh, because mm. it's all original music and uh, it's quite unique uh, in a lot of ways and it's a pianist I've never heard of before and uh, so I was excited to introduce this I think I should check this out it's really exciting it's called the Sonic Sessions and this is on Eclipse Music Super Sounds Music Oi by the Finnish Piano Trio uh, Alexis Liuko Trio. And Liuko, born 1984, he's a pianist and composer originally from Kuopio, now based in Helsinki. And so he's got this trio, and this is their debut album, The Sonic Sessions. But he also uh, plays in the Sointi 
Jazz Orchestra and uh, Laura Anika Quartet and other bands. And he studied at Metropolia University of Applied Sciences, graduated in 2019 with a master's degree in music from the University of Gothenburg. And he also composes and arranges music for a big band. And uh, so I'd be interested to uh, hear some of that as well. We've got all of his original compositions on this recording. Mikael Sastamonian on bass and Oko Sastamonian on drums. Brothers, perhaps? Hmm. I guess. I don't know. As I said, this album is really hard to put into words, but I'm going to do my best uh, here. Hmm. It starts with a tune called Fourth Letter. And this one has a rhythmic piano intro for eight bars. Uh, drums and bass join in on the repeat of that with cymbal textures and the bass locking in with Lyoko's left hand. The first section of the following melody uh, has right-hand piano phrases that are answered by the left hand and bass uh, on a bass line for 16 bars. And then the next section has a completely different feel with bass and left-hand chords solidly hitting on beats one and three. That section transitions back into eight bars of the rhythmic pattern from the intro. Then we get a bass solo. I'm not going to try to say these guys' uh, last name because <laughs> they're both the same and uh, we want to tell them apart. So uh, we're going to have a bass solo from Mikael. Interesting articulation all over this album, but I started to notice it right away here. Very clear attacks, rhythmic ideas with muted notes and very snappy phrases. Luko follows that with a piano solo. He starts out with lots of space, phrases with snappy rhythms, and works up to some more percussive ideas. Speedy runs, and one characteristic that I continued to notice in his playing is that he changes directions really rapidly in his lines. Uh, he's going, and then, then he's going in the other direction. His phrasing is very unique and interesting. Great drum fills going on underneath him, too, uh, and some really uh, high note rhythmic bass ideas. Uh, that segues back into the melody of high phrases and lower answers uh, that we heard before and through the other sections. And they vamp out on the intro riff idea for Akko to work up the drums uh, for a while until the end. It's really a fresh and rhythmically interesting tune to get things started. But there's a lot more <laughs> interesting things to come. Track two is Simple Scene. This one has a 16-bar solo piano opening. Uh, as a unique rhythmic pulse in 5-4. Bass and light drum brushing join in. The melody moves along alternating between sections of 5-4 and 4-4, as does uh, Luko's solo, which keeps its forward motion over the changing meters uh, with snappy swinging phrases and percussive chords. He finishes it up with some ringing repeated intervals that get quieter, then into a bass solo from Mikael, again with snappy rhythmic phrases and clear attack. They tie it back to some more melody from Lyoko and ringing piano as the drums get softer and bass pulls back to rhythmic pulses. There's lots of tricky meter switches here that I'll have to listen to more times in order to get a better map of the structure of this tune. There's a lot going on. Then we're going to have the first of sort of a series of three just little interlude pieces. I would mm -hmm. guess they're kind of snippets of sort of uh, spontaneous improvisations. This is uh, Trio Lyoko, the, so the trio's name, uh, one. Uh, it's only it's less than a minute long. It fades into this short track of chiming piano chords and staccato bass lines. It sort of unwinds rhythmically and gets quiet as the drums drop out and uh, the bass 
sort of movement comes to a rest, and that's it. Track four, Mirthful Song. This one starts with eight bars of alternating chord bass ostinato phrases in a fast 6-8 feel. Luco joins in with chimey and choppy piano chords and a melody of chasing piano lines. He flows into a solo with a light touch and bright lines over the uplifting chords. His lines turn on a dime and always keep you wondering what direction he'll go in next until he hits on a repeated rhythmic note for a while that's kind of giving me the image of a flitting butterfly that's just landed uh, for a moment. After some percussive and chiming chords, he changes his touch to some more lighter lines, getting softer back into the original melody idea, while Mikhail's bass keeps ringing out strongly. They push the melody intensely to the end, finishing on slowed down descending chords. Track five is called Year Starter. It's a two bar drum intro that kicks it up into the tune. It's an upbeat and happy sounding melody that's super syncopated. If you count it in four, and don't get tripped up <laughs> over all the syncopations. It seems to be a 14-bar phrase length uh, that they go around twice. The interplay between piano and bass is great. Yuko comes out of that with relaxed phrases to start soloing over a very snappy bass, uh, which then switches up to walking. Yuko has a lot of chiming chords and cool synchronized two-hand rhythmic figures in his solo. Uh, Mikhail then gets a bass solo. It's both very melodic and rhythmic and has some really cool bends in it too. Uh, then Luko's back for some more improvisations on the piano, kind of trading off phrases with drum swells from Oko and then works it back into another round of the melody to finish it up. Track six is the second interlude piece, Trio Luko 2, also less than a minute. It fades in here, piano has some light ringing chords, but pulls back to let the busy, unique interplay of the fast bass and drum figures kind of work themselves out to a resolution. Then we're going to get uh, kind of a, the standout tune, I guess, uh, here, COVID-7-8. Hmm. This one starts with alternating rhythmic chord figures from Luko, as labeled in 7-8 meter. Mm. Akko joins in with some furious fills on the drums, and we get a funky bass part going for a 16-bar intro. It lightens up for the chimey melody that has big chord hits and pauses along the way. It's a really fun tune. It kind of reminds me of like something Vince Guaraldi would do if he took a hit of acid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the subdivided drums from Akko are great. Mikhail has a great energetically throbbing bass solo with all sorts of fun. And Lyoko stays on through the bass solo, adding ideas in, and they work together on a crazy repeated note idea. Then Lyoko pulls out of that into a solo of surprisingly smooth lines over this meter and crazy subdivisions. Uh, he works it up into more aggressive percussive playing with a huge buildup of Alko's drums to a big climax. Comes back down soft with some big bendy bass notes into a uh, again, a softer restatement of the melody that includes a huge pregnant pause this time. And then Lyoko really chimes and hammers it out to the end over a very cool, busy Latin-style drumming from Oko. <laughs> it's a lot of fun on this mm -hmm. tune. So now you got me thinking about Vince Guaraldi. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get this yeah, out of my not, mind now. Not that he did anything like that. I'm yeah, yeah. No, we're, just, not, we're not casting any aspersions on no. Mr. Giraldi, who we really yeah, revere we really like and admire. It. Yes. Okay. I do anyway. No, we both do. Yeah. yeah like absolutely. Yeah. Track eight, yeah. Beyond the Winter Wasteland. It's a softly flowing melody of ringing intervals and then chords. This tune, it really draws you in, but then it pauses 
before the phrase repeats again. It's, it's showing a more subtle side of what this trio can do. Very nice ringing bass from Mikael here. It suddenly works up to big chiming chords that fade to uh, soft right hand lines over interesting bass textures and then undulations in the bass uh, next time we hear it. It's at a whisper by the middle flowing on its own. Aqua has skittering drum work with brushes as it chimes up to another climax. Then Lyoko brings back the interval theme for a final exposition and build up into chiming chords with some final echoes. This was a very interesting free-flowing contrast to all the intense rhythmic tunes we've heard so far. Track 9 is uh, the last of the three sort of interludes, Trio Lyoko 3. Uh, it builds with busy piano chord rhythms over uh, drums that feel like a beating heart. The rhythms to me sort of pull apart and form into eventually a walking bass swing and ride cymbal feel under kind of alternating right hand piano notes and a meandering left hand of the piano. Uh, but then it fades out just as you're wondering what's going to happen next. Track 10, Tributary Flow. It's got a 12-bar drum intro with a heartbeat bass drum and brushed snare. A piano and bass take a round with rhythmic chords on the 12-bar pattern, and then Lyuko adds a melody that has interesting interval ideas in it. Uh, the rhythmic chords are insistent and hypnotic until Lyuko drops them uh, for solo ideas of mostly right hand uh, to start, then punctuating with some more left-handed chords. I like the evenness of his right hand lines uh, contrasting with the syncopated chord figures. Uh, he plays some speedy runs and then also some nicely hesitated phrase ideas. Uh, bass and drums get a little interlude before Lyoko brings back the rhythmic chord idea and the intervalic melody. Track 11, Garlic? That's with a <laughs> question mark. Alko's yeah. drums take the lead here with the punctuations from piano and bass. Uh, it works into some speedy stop time piano line melodies and then really fast improvisations from Lyoko. Uh, he starts a sparse solo but works up to furious swing with walking bass. Uh, and the piano's on fire here speedy but smooth solo lines climaxing and hammering chords. Uh, they work through the speedy lined melody once more to finish it out. It's over in just over three minutes. And then we get a closing solo piano piece called Deluged View. This one starts with uh, soft rhythmic chords and after a round and a pause, Yuko adds a melody line that floats on top and then sort of joins in with the left-hand rhythms. Uh, there's another reset and development with the uh, pretty right-hand melodies. The phrases seem to flow in seven-beat kind of phrase patterns, but that changes up sometimes. It seems like five. It's hard to stay on top of everything that's going on rhythmically there because it's constant. Uh, the lines then get to this deluge in a darker and murky sustain as it moves towards the end and they unwind slowly to a stop with the final sounds ringing out for a real extended period to the end of the recording. And that's it. So all original compositions here from Lyuko, uh, they'll provide you with some intense listening uh, to figure out all the structures and what's going on. Nothing familiar to hold on to here. But the rhythms are intense and fascinating. There's really great interplay all around in this trio. And Luco's piano playing concept is very unique and fresh. His solos are energetic, 
They show great technique, but also sensitivity to dynamics and tone. I found it a really exciting recording, and I'm really interested to check out more of his music, including his arranging and composing for Big Ben. Yeah, I, one of the, my favorite things about music in general is subtlety, when somebody will sort of um, do this like sleight of hand that you, you really don't notice, like they'll change mm. like one instrument in an orchestral score and it'll like change the whole texture somehow and you're wondering what was that? Yeah. Well, I got a lot of that kind of thing happening on this album. I really enjoyed its subtlety. There were quick rhythmic changes and repeating patterns, subtle transitions from one section to another. And these kind of things make me smile, These just these little details. They say God is in the details. Well, that's, that's where the real joy in music is for me. Um, I like this kind of playing and arranging, really, in any type of music. And I like the way Liuko would rephrase his chord patterns, like at the end of Mirthful Song. Hmm. But there are other instances where he does this. He keeps your ear kind of attentive. And I like the way the trio remains relatively quiet throughout, yet still puts across rhythmic energy you kind of think if you want to put because you haven't grown up with rock and roll you kind of think that in order to get energy across it has to be loud but not the case as we hear on mm. this album yeah i would love to have this one on a cd too but this one is not available sadly and i hope it will be i really did like it a lot we'd like to put this one in the collection here's a, a trio a debut recording from mm. finland this is yeah. going to go under the radar yeah <laughs> you're not going to see yeah. this on anyone else's uh and it's a uh, shame podcast. because you'll miss out. It's really yeah. good. It's really worth hearing. Yeah. You know, you know. So that's one of the things I that's I want to find here. recordings <laughs> like this yeah, to yeah. Uh, highlight and uh, put out yeah. there. But uh, yeah, check this out if you haven't heard it. I think you'll be impressed and uh, dazzled a bit uh, by yeah. this interesting music on this recording. Re really by all three of the jazz recordings we did tonight. And if you like yeah. great piano playing and you're really up for a big challenge, the Messian recording too. I thought that was amazing. Um, oh, by the way, I have to like correct something I said earlier. The Ulf Meyer recording is in fact available on CD right now from his Bandcamp site. I hadn't huh. looked there. And it's available for us in Japan on January 31st through Amazon Japan on Oh, okay. Clara Music, but you can get it directly from his Bandcamp site right now. That's the only oh. place it's available for some reason. Okay. But, um, I'd like it. I don't know if I want to pay the big shipping charge they're going to charge us <laughs> from to Bandcamp. get it here. Hey, yeah. Wait until it comes uh, on uh, Amazon next month. There might be a big shipping charge there too, though, so I don't know. Uh, we'll see. I, I'd like to have that one. Actually, I'd I like to have all yeah. of these uh, that we had yeah. on this week. Yeah. That's about it for uh, this episode. I actually, after saying I wasn't going to go for themes for the end of this yeah. year, I'm going to have a theme for next week. That's Danish. Oh. No, not not the one that you eat with your morning coffee, but uh, <laughs> music from Denmark. I just happened to notice I had a bunch of... Uh, Although we could have that double entendre in the uh, episode title. And we probably week. will, so, knowing so us. We yes. probably will, knowing <laughs> us. Yes, exactly. But uh, we've got yeah. some... Uh, Danish jazz recordings, and those should sound especially good on our Dolly speakers. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll pull those out. I had it just like uh, six or seven, and uh, so I'm going to pick the best three, and we'll check out uh, what's uh, going on in Denmark on uh, the jazz recording scene. So we're going to have some vibes, some sax, and a little uh, larger ensemble uh, to check out for next week. Now, if you want to know exactly what those recordings are, remember after this episode goes up, you can find the full playlist on Deezer and a link to that also be on our Facebook page as well. Any uh, hints for next week or you went to... Um... Well, I know what I'm going to do. Um, I don't really have a, a theme, but mm -hmm. so I won't be 
doing anything Danish. She kind of caught me by surprise there. <laughs> I just decided <laughs> at the last moment. So I've got um, a new uh, Carolyn Shaw with the Ataka Quartet that I was talking about earlier. I wanted mm. to hear that. And I've got Diotim uh, Langlois de Sauvart, one of our favorite oh. violinists, with Justin yeah. Taylor, one of our favorite harpsichordists. They got together and did an album on the uh, Franco brothers. I'm going to talk about that too. And then a composer I don't know anything about, but I will by next week. So, huh. All right. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Yeah. And remember, that'll be our last episode of new music this year before we... Uh... Yeah. Officially anyway, because yeah. I think we're going to put one up on... That'll go up on December 31st in America, but here it'll be up on January yeah. 1st. Yeah. And uh, we'll get to yeah. our best of 2021 episode uh, the following week for Christmas. And uh, then after you uh, return all the presents that you don't like and have that little extra bit of holiday cash, you can go out and buy some well, new maybe, recordings. Maybe, maybe you're a listener to this uh, podcast and you're going to get your friends some of these great albums and they're just going to be blown away by how cool yeah. you are because That's you're right. listening to all this music they have no other way of hearing about. Yeah. So there you go. That's what we're here for. All right. Another so year. Almost finished. Almost finished. It's been episode 93 of adult music and thanks as always to fast signs of staten island for our glowing neon logo be sure to check out those other podcasts if you hang on to the end of this episode you'll hear their promos we've got them all lined up we've got things all coordinated between <laughs> between our podcast ring now and yeah, we hope to share listeners with each other and uh, yeah. grow our audience into the new year so check that playlist for next week it'll be up shortly as i mentioned and we'll see you again next week for episode 94 gerald albright Rhea snyder charlie hunter duke robillard sean jones walter beasley steve swallow something came from baltimore's a jazz blues and r&b podcast and radio show and it's not really about baltimore subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that something came from Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. Thank you.